four, three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in to another podcast. And hello to you, Dr. Zom. Hiya, thank you for having me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. Hopefully you're having a fun day. <laughs> well, yeah, it's nice and quiet at home, I suppose, like everyone else. Please uh, tell everyone who you are and what your background is and generally what you do. Yes, yeah, so my name's Maria. <clears throat> Sorry, I've been for a run earlier today, so I'm a bit coffee. But, I, you know, I don't have corona, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, anyhow, I'm, my name's Maria. I am um, basic, I'm a researcher. I've got, or I was a researcher, and I'm currently working in scientific publishing. Um, my background, originally I did an undergraduate degree in molecular biology and genetics, and then followed that up with a master's in molecular medicine. And eventually I completed a PhD studying bacteriology. So, you know, this is mainly bacteriology rather than virology, but I was always very interested in infectious diseases. So when I was studying my PhD, I was looking at uh, infectious bacteria and I was in fact uh, interested in um, proteins that protect these bacteria against uh, stress that happens during, for example, infections and survival in the environment. So although my main background, the main expertise is not in uh, viruses as such, I have got a lot of uh, knowledge on infectious diseases and I've got a great interest in that. And mm-hmm. then after I finished my PhD, I basically, uh, well, I realized that I really enjoy reading and writing about science, but I'm not quite as fun, fun as fond of the wet work. So I moved on to scientific publishing, worked for an editor as an editor for the BMC series for two years and as part of a big publisher called Spring and Nature that people who do science may know about. And since then, I've moved on to another publisher called PLOS, where I work now as a senior editor as part of the publication ethics team. So I now look at a, a wide range of research when we think that there may be concerns with papers, either when they've been submitted to us or when they've been published. And then I look at what people have done, how they've carried out the research, and whether or not there are problems with uh, said papers. So yeah, I still get in touch with an awful lot of, of well, I basically deal with science every day, just not in the lab. Um, and obviously, at the moment, we get a lot of corona papers coming through um, in the system. Mm-hmm. Can you just quickly clarify for people who may not know, what's the difference between uh, virology and, uh, what did you say, bacteriology? Bacteriology. Yes. Well, the, you know, the clue is a little bit in the name. Uh, the big, big difference there, virologists look at viruses and bacteriologists look at bacteria. These are completely different groups of life. Um, but one of the things that they have in common is that a lot of them can infect humans or animals or plants. Um, virology is a very specific field within biology because certain um, people within biology would even say that virology is not quite biology because viruses are technically not alive. They are not able to survive by themselves. They're not able to replicate themselves. Uh, instead, they go and find what's called a host cell. So that can be an animal cell or a plant cell or a human cell for that matter. Um, And they basically get into the cell and hijack the cell and then make sure that their host is creating more particles, more viral particles. Whereas obviously bacteria are living entities. They're single cellular organisms usually, Um, but they can completely live by themselves, replicate by themselves. So they're very, very different from viruses. In fact, there are actually viruses that can infect bacteria. So it's, you know, it's a bit of a, a, a complete different field within biology, but then infectious biology itself is not quite that different um, 
or at least there's a lot of overlapping fields within infectious biology. I see. That makes sense. And uh, I was going to ask this like a little bit later on, but I think we've gotten into like talking about it now, so I'm just going to ask it now. Um, what are the main, um, I suppose, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, microorganisms that can uh, infect? Um, so for example, uh, we've got the two obvious ones. We've got uh, the viruses and the bacteria. And I believe, uh, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, um, the viruses, um, they strike harder, but they go out quicker while the bacteria take like a little bit more time, but they're, then they're more resilient. Is that correct? Uh, it really depends on the organism. Um, viruses, obviously, they can only survive inside a host cell. Uh, and so viruses, they can be very long lasting. Like if you look at, for example, uh, the, the chickenpox, the kind of virus that causes the chickenpox, varicella, that can still stay around for a very long time, sort of dormant, asleep in the system, and then come back as um, shingles, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> shingles at a much later age, over a much later time. If you look at HIV, which is a viral infection, that stays around at the moment until the host has passed away. Because in a virus, it's in their interest to make sure that the host gets infected but doesn't die. Because when the host dies, the virus can no longer survive by themselves. With bacteria, it really depends. Certain bacteria can be very quick and can make you ill very, very quickly. Um, if you think of, for example, tetanus can make you very, uh, very ill very quickly at a very low number of cells. And then other bacteria, such as, for example, tuberculosis, can stay around for months or even years without you even knowing that you have it. And then they might actually never make you ill or they might make you ill when your immune system is down because you're infected with something else. So there is a very... A uh, very big range, both within viruses and bacteria, in what they can and cannot do. However, it is usually the case that bacteria take a bit longer to start an infection because they need to have a large number of cells to make you ill. Whereas, obviously, a virus, all, all in, a single virus, can infect your cell and then works from there. I see. Um, so yeah. So those are the two main types. Are types? Are there any other that you want to mention? Well, I mean, when it comes to infectious diseases, you could also look at parasites. <clears throat> when we're thinking of parasites, then you think, for example, malaria, which are actually multicellular organisms that live inside your cells, uh, tapeworms and something similar that might live in your gut. <coughs> I'm so sorry. It's all right. Um, and then finally, um, there are also diseases known as prion diseases, and they are a bit different because they're technically only proteins that sort of multiply themselves it's a it's a very different field and i don't really want to talk about that too much right now because it's a very specialized field that's for one i don't know an awful lot about and two i think that is going to be too far off topic but those are the main four main fields of infectious diseases that we deal with okay thank you very much that's great so um <clears throat> how much attention have you been paying to the COVID-19 situation and uh, you said that you work, th that you see papers all the time and there's a lot of research going on right now. Um, has it come up within like your line of work and what exactly have you seen recently? Uh, yeah, so I've been following this since it started getting, um, the information was starting to come out from China initially. So that's back in like December, January kind of time when they were initially talking about this. Uh, and over here, people were all still like, oh, it's going to be minor. And at the time, we were not quite sure yet how far it would spread. Um, I've been keeping an eye on this because I'm, as I said before, I'm really interested in infectious diseases in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, 
and then obviously as it started to become bigger and it started to spread further i've also started to be able to see some of the early research that has come out and at the moment there is an awful lot of new research coming out which is great but it's also very important to keep in mind that research usually takes years and years to come with definite answers whereas everyone is now answering you know they, they all want an answer to the question yesterday or even you know last week and that makes it very difficult because a lot of the research that comes out is very preliminary it might very well be flawed um but people are more likely to jump on conclusions based on the preliminary research results that have been published and that can cause problems but at the same time, we need as much information as quickly as possible so that we have the best chance to start fighting this sooner rather than later. I agree. I have noticed this um, when the news initially started coming out. People said, like, uh, it's just going to be like another seasonal thing. It's going to, like, pass on pretty quickly, like, in a couple of weeks. We're not going to remember it. And um, is it fair to say that, um, first of all, that's not true, but it's not just going to be like... Um, it's not just going to be like a, like a blizzard that comes that comes uh, to us. It's going to be like a winter. It's going to be like something that's going to last for a while, and we need to like adapt to it and accept that um, it's quite serious and it's not just going to go away. Like a lot of people initially thought they, that it will. Yeah, no, it's definitely well. I'd say definitely. That's always a very dangerous thing to say in science, um, but it is not going to go away anytime quickly unless all of a sudden we find a miracle miracle wonder drug tomorrow which is incredibly unlikely um the reason why a lot of people initially thought that this might blow over is because we are thinking back of for example the SARS and the uh, MERS infections that happened in I think 2003 and 2014 Mm -hmm. you know around those times anyway and they were initially you know there was a lot of news, a um, lot of information on the news going that it was going to be a big thing and it was going to be a worldwide threat. And in the end, those cases were relatively contained to only a few thousand people. Um, and that's, you know, um, it sort of gave people the idea that this is a new coronavirus. You know, coronavirus itself is not novel to humans. It's just this particular coronavirus is novel to humans. Um, and they initially thought that it would be okay. However, I think a big difference with this particular coronavirus is that it has uh, the ability to infect people without making them very ill, or at least without showing that they are very ill. Some people obviously are getting very ill and are dying, but there's also a large number of people who get ill and don't show any symptoms or show very mild symptoms. And as a result, you don't see that they are ill. And by the time that we realized how big a group of population is not actually ill, the disease had already spread very far and very wide. And I think it's one of these these things that a lot of people have been taken by surprise um, because of the, the way that it's spread. It's something that, for me, doesn't really come as much of a surprise. I mean, it's not that I knew this was going to happen with COVID when it came out, but it is something that a lot of people who are interested in infectious diseases have been warning about for a long time. You know, the, the kind of spread of diseases that we see now is nothing different from how diseases such as polio and measles and uh, diphtheria used to spread before we had vaccines. And this is a novel virus that we haven't got any vaccines for, <clears throat> and it's very capable of infecting other people, of spreading very easily. So it, isn't, it doesn't come to me as a surprise that it spreads so quickly and so far. Mm-hmm. And... Um... 
how how do you think that this happened in China? How do you think this started? Because um, I've heard like people like way way before. I'm not I'm not talking like January the last couple of, uh, months. Like I've heard like people say like years ago that um, China is uh, a very very um, suitable uh, breeding ground, if you will, for um, um, infections infections and whatnot um emerging from there because um uh, they have a very very dense population and uh, they're known for like um you know keeping a lot of animals together and whatnot um they um are much more open-minded uh, in comparison to like uh, us in western europe or like people in north america like the western world about like eating certain uh, certain exotic animals and stuff like that and you know there uh, there are a bunch of theories out there um wuhan which is the region where um, the virus originally came from has been known to um, be a region where origin of China where the where China experiments with like uh, does like medical experiments. Um, China has been one of the um, leading countries in uh, medical exper experiments, um, particularly lately with um, um, what was it called um, the genetic program. Oh. I know what you mean. I can't think of the yeah, name. Yeah, I can't think of it. Uh, my think head of it either. either. Uh, but yeah, um, that that's a different topic, though. But you know, some people say that um, it's something that may have escaped from the lab, or uh, but the the main theory is like there was a there was a market in Wuhan that sold um, uh, CRISPR. CRISPR is the name. Um, oh yeah. But, uh, but but there was a market that had like a bunch of animals, and they were like. Um, chicken uh so poultry and uh and um m mammals uh together and f from what i understand chickens are very very good at um breeding um viruses so stuff like chicken pox um, um it came out that way or like uh, the the bird flu rather and um also uh ma mammals like when you have chicken and mammals like the, the virus can mutate like because uh, through the mammal host and like that that can make um, pathogens that um can affect humans also so do we really know what happened in, in china well there's currently a lot of research being done onto what the origins of the origins are of uh covid specifically or this this new covid virus i'm gonna just when i'm talking about covid i mean the new co the virus sars cov2 uh Obviously, COVID itself is a description of the disease rather than the virus, but I think that makes it the easiest way to just refer to it. Um, so China is indeed an area that is known for new diseases popping up. And a big part of that is indeed the animal trade. I think in 2011, there was an article uh, published that wrote that the horseshoe bat population in China is a massive a reservoir of all kinds of different coronaviruses and that it's just a time bomb of an infection a worldwide infection waiting to happen which obviously people used to scoff at and now you're looking at it and go like <clears throat> oh oh we should have really listened to this a bit better the 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 thing with um with, with viruses is that they are designed in such a way that they tend to mutate very quickly because the more that you mutate, the more likely that at least some of those different mutations are more successful. Uh, and in addition, they don't really have the same kind of systems in place that we as, as, as eukaryotic cells, as, as bigger organisms or even bacteria have in place 
to check DNA when it's or RNA when it's being copied. So it is a system that is very prone for mutations. Um, some of these mutations will make the virus completely inactive and will not benefit it in any way, shape or form. But other mutations can make it far more infectious or more resistant to certain circumstances. So if you look at, for example, HIV, people who've got full-blown AIDS um, and have not got access to the right medication uh, can make up to 20 million differently mutated particles every day. Which is also why a lot of the HIV drugs were always very ineffective because people who would get a medication within three or four months, there would be a form of a mutation that would make that virus no longer susceptible to the medication. And that's the same with, with COVID. It is a disease that can, uh, if it's a virus, it can mutate very quickly. And some of those mutations will allow it to jump between species. Um, and once the disease can start to jump between species, it starts to become very dangerous. And I think I will eventually need to look this up for you because I don't, I'm not 100% certain if that's the, the, the latest background on this disease. But what I've read about a week or two ago is that the COVID virus is very similar to um, the coronaviruses that are usually found in horseshoe bats. And there are parts of it that are also very similar to the Chinese pangolin, as in the animal, the Chinese pangolin. So they think that it has been jumping between those species, has taken up, you know, different genetic bits from both and then created a virus that happens to be very successful in humans. Obviously, there's always going to be conspiracy theories, uh, theories that such a disease will have escaped from the lab. I think that is very unlikely in at least... When you keep something in the lab, you know an awful lot about that disease and you know a lot about those strains. You know all of the genetic background, you know everything of that, what you have in the lab. So the fact that we know so little about this virus means that I think it's very, very unlikely that this indeed will have come from a lab. Is a genetic experiment gone wrong? Obviously, people will be skeptical about the fact that it's in China, but we should also remember that China has taken a massive economic hit. Um, and if they had that kind of knowledge that they would have of a virus that is basically a lab strain, it's very unlikely that a current situ that we would be in the current situation. We would already know a lot more about the virus than we currently do, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Um, but yeah, in China, in addition, we obviously have the whole situation where there are a lot of wet animal markets where there is people close together, where there's animals close together, where those animals are kept in conditions that are well below European standards for animal wealth, uh, uh, animal health care. And it's important to keep in mind that when we're talking about um, regulations to keep animals safe and healthy and at least treat them with a certain level of, of, of comfort when it comes to rearing animals for food, you know, this is not just to protect the animals and to make sure that the animal welfare is, is right. It's also because if animals are being kept in dirty circumstances, very close, cropped together, very, you know, then that is a breeding ground for disease. So a lot of the regulations that we've put in place in Europe are not only to protect the animals, but indirectly, it's also very much in place to protect us against potential diseases from these animals. Mm. When we... Um, you know, slaughter a cow for its beef, it needs to go through a whole protocol that tests for infectious diseases and for things that are unknown. Obviously, that doesn't happen on these food and animal markets in China. 
Um, so it is far more likely that there are diseases that are spreading, uh, spreading, are uh, jumping and mutating there because of the, num the wide range, the, the, the number of animals together, the wide range of animals together, and the animals living in very close proximity to humans. Um, and that all together creates a, an ideal situation for viruses to jump between species and you know become potentially virulent in a way that we see it now. But it is important to keep in mind that corona, as I said before, coronaviruses are not novel to humans. It's been, um, you know, even before SARS and MERS, coronaviruses were actually quite common and they were thought to cause up to 13% of respiratory infections in humans. They were just not really deadly. Whereas now we have a couple of coronaviruses that are not just like they spread easily and they make us feel a bit under the weather, they are actually killing people. And that is a relatively novel um, development within these viruses, at least to what I understand, but my background, my, um, you know, my limited background within virology. I see. So it started in China and then uh, I think it first came to Italy where, where a couple of um, Chinese tourists that were in Italy had it. And from that, uh, that point onward, it spread throughout Europe. And then I think, um, in North America, it was first um, discovered on the west coast um, of the United States. And from that point onward, um, it just like spread everywhere. Um, the virus doesn't seem to discriminate against different climates. Uh, one thing that I, um, I was thinking about is because, you know, viruses are like very, very vulnerable. Like they might do like, um, for example, bacteria, which is a little bit more resilient from my understanding, can do like, can, can like survive longer in different climates, whereas, um, you know, viruses might have like a difficult time in certain um, environments. But this one seems to be doing pretty well. Um, yeah. Interesting? Well, so bacteria, as we sort of differentiated before, bacteria are alive. They are able to adapt and change to a new environment. If you put bacteria in a very hot environment, it starts making proteins that will protect themselves against the heat. Uh, if you put it in a very dry environment, it will create a lot of proteins that will help retain its liquid, you know, make sure that the cell doesn't lose too much uh, fluids. Or the other way around, if it's in water, it makes sure that the cell doesn't take up too much water. Whereas a virus doesn't have those options. A virus usually is a bit of genetic material, which may be either DNA or RNA, um, that is then sometimes surrounded by proteins that will protect that DNA. A couple of proteins that may help with the extraction of with the, the translation of the DNA. So that's basically the translation is the process of turning DNA into a protein. Um, a membrane, so basically the skin of the virus that usually is sort of stolen from the host cell when the, the virus leaves, it takes uh, a bit of the membrane from the host cell with it. And then some extra proteins on the outside, known as um, spikes, for example, um, that are used to then be able to bind to another host cell. But it doesn't have all of these other features that allow it to change, that allow, you know, it doesn't create its own energy. It doesn't create, it doesn't have all of those systems. It's not an actual cell. It's a, it's a particle. It's in a way the ultimate parasite. It's the ultimate hijacker. What a virus does is it goes into your cell, it binds to your cell, merges itself with your cell, and then goes like, right, now you're going to work for me. And then forces a cell to start creating a lot of viral proteins. 
but it is not actually alive. So obviously, as it isn't alive, it's also unable to adapt to its environment because there is you know, no system in place to adapt. So when it comes to viruses surviving in the environment, it's one of those things that the real surprise is like, for one, viruses don't survive. It's more as how long can they stick around and they can still infect a host. And admittedly, for a lot of viruses, that's relatively short. And in certain climates, they might be able to stay around for longer than others. Although the question there is, is, is it a lot the climate itself or is it just how many people are around? Because viruses tend to do very well in densely populated regions. But mm -hmm. viruses can do very well in Asia or in Europe. And obviously, the climates there can be very different. In China itself, you know, it's such a big country. The climates in China are massively different. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at, for example, the Ebola virus, that is able to stay alive outside of the body for a very long time. I don't quite want to give a number to it, but I believe that is, you know, in, in, in we're looking at months okay. after a host has died, if not longer than that. But I don't want to say that for certain. I don't want to put wrong in there. So there are viruses that are actually able to stay around and stay alive for a very long time after it's left the body. However, most of them are not because they cannot survive. They cannot adapt. So once they've left the body, they basically need to find another host pretty quickly. Okay. This is a very good answer. Um, let's talk about like the actual virus itself. Um, a lot of people like may know um, a lot of this information already, but I think it's important for us to um, to go like over it, and then we're gonna talk about like what we do about it. Um, okay, so. We've got it everywhere now. It's um, um, it's a global pandemic. Uh, we've been playing this podcast for a couple of weeks, and uh, back then when I originally started making my plan, I was going to ask you, uh, is it fair to like call it a pandemic now? But obviously, uh, some time has passed, and it's it's undeniably a global pandemic, and probably the biggest one of the current century that that we that we're dealing with. So, what exactly is COVID nineteen? Um, what are the symptoms? Um, the incubation period, um, please like tell me everything you know about it. Okay, so I think at the moment, a lot of the knowledge that we have of COVID-19 uh, is speculation. Because, you know, a lot of these questions that people are asking, what is it? How long does it survive? What's the incubation period? It's technically all still under investigation. And usually it takes months to confirm these questions. So it is something that we need to keep in mind when we're actually talking about this kind of information. So coronavirus is a positive sense um, enveloped RNA virus, which basically means that it is a virus that has RNA instead of DNA. It's basically another nucleic acid that your body also works with. Um, and the fact that it's enveloped means that it has a protective layer around its RNA. And it's very, it's, you know, COVID viruses have a very large genome. So they have the, 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 the amount of DNA, of the amount of RNA that's in there, is relatively big compared to a lot of other uh, viruses. I can't tell you why that's the difference because I haven't really specialized in that, but that's a couple of things that we do know about coronaviruses. Okay. So they are, um, they've got like a membrane that has these kind of, uh, so this, the membrane as mentioned before is like the skin of the, of the virus and it has like spikes coming out that have a bit of a shape of a club. And these spikes um, are, Proteins that help with diffusion of the virus with the host cell. 
And in the case of coronaviruses, we know, or, or not all coronaviruses, but uh, COVID-19, um, we know that it binds to, uh, among other receptors, the ACE2 receptors. Now, a receptor, for those who do not know, is sorry, is basically um, a protein that sticks out of the cell, out of the host cell, um, and that is involved in interactions of the cell with its environment. So a receptor can be um, binding to hormones, binding to signal molecules, interacting with other cells. So a receptor is basically a part of the cell that allows that cell to work together with its environment and with other cells around it. These are then also being abused in a way by viruses because they use these receptors to bind to it and then pull themselves close so that they can basically meld together and become one. So the virus and the host cell become one entity at that point. Um, when it really comes to uh, corona itself, once it enters the cell, the first thing that it does is it creates um, it creates a, a, a complex that allows the cell to start breeding uh, and making a lot of viral proteins. And that is one of the biggest problems with viruses. It's not even so much that the virus itself like makes you ill. There's very few viruses that create anything that you know that really attack the body in such a way. But what it does, it is basically stopping the, the, your cells from doing their job. It forces your cells to create more viral particles. And if enough cells get infected, it means you no longer have enough cells to do what you need to do. And especially in, for example, the lungs, that can be a problem because it might be able to affect people's ability to breathe. It might start filling the lungs up with fluids. And also it might, which happens a lot in COVID um, or in respir respiratory viruses uh, overall, is it makes your body more susceptible for other infections that wouldn't kill it. So most people, or I can't, I wouldn't say most until I've seen the numbers, but a lot of people that have COVID have also been reported to then get pneumonia on top of that, which is usually a bacterial infection. And these bacterial infections are bacteria that are usually relatively harmless until they see a chance to infect. And COVID does not only damage the cells um, and takes over part of your lungs to do their own thing, but it also means that it's much easier for other diseases to start uh, making you ill on top of that. <coughs> um, that is COVID-19 specifically, but we do know that certain, COVID, uh, certain coronaviruses can also, you know, they can cause infection of the inner stomach lining in cats, or they can cause bronchitis in cattles and rats and chickens, or a particular kind of form of renal disease in um, chickens as well, I believe, and corona has even been, or coronaviruses have even been seen in whales, where they cause respiratory illnesses and lung failure. So it is one of those things that, you know, they they take over your cells, and therefore your cells can no longer function properly, and therefore your body can no longer function properly. I see. Okay. So um, I want to ask a couple of more difficult questions more technical questions and before before I do this i just want to go on record and say uh i have a very very limited understanding of this this is not my area of expertise at all and i'm probably going to butcher this but i'm going to give it a try and hopefully you can correct me and then uh, uh give us some uh, helpful information so i want to ask you about like uh the act receptor issue 
So uh, my understanding is that an AC2 is a receptor uh, of uh, our cells through which the virus enters our cells. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the elderly people um, who are getting infected, who are uh, at a higher risk, um, a lot of them take um, um, medicine for like for their blood pressure, like you know, high blood pressure, uh, most commonly. Uh, a lot of the medicines um, for um, high blood pressure uh, have something that's uh, called an ACE uh, inhibitor. Uh, it's commonly found in a lot of them. Um, and I wonder if that increases or, dec or can decrease the mortality rate of COVID-19 because on one side, um, that, uh, from what I understand, that inhibitor increases uh, the number of cells that the virus will affect. Uh, but on the other side, uh, they can reduce some of the more dangerous symptoms like inflammation, like in the lungs particularly. Um, so, so, so they can be seen as something that has a both positive and negative effect, kind of like a double-edged blade. Um, I'm just wondering what you think about that. Yeah, well, in a way, you're not very far, really, when it comes to the ACE2 receptors. So, as you mentioned correctly, ACE2 receptors are receptors that are on the outside of a lot of cells, and they are involved in um, a process that basically converts angiotensin. And angiotensin is a particular hormone. Um, a hormone is basically a protein that is involved in the regulation of systems in your body. It's a signaling, uh, basically a signaling molecule. And angiotensin is very important in the regulation of all kinds of vascular functions. So blood pressure, blood volume, the amount of sodium that your body excretes via uh, its urine, for example. And it's a very, very, very important uh, part of maintaining the sort of homeostasis and uh, equilibrium in your body, uh, at least in the vascular system. Um, people who have heart problems, specifically people who are at risk of heart failure, get particular medications that upregulate the ACE2 expression. And basically, in layman's terms, that means that they, uh, these medications make sure that your cells create more of this particular receptor. Now, in theory, creating more receptors means that people will get more viral particles. However, the question there would want to be, is it going to create more receptors on cells that wouldn't have them otherwise? Because in the end, if a, if a cell is infected by one particle or by 20 particles, in the end, if it's infected, it will very soon be full of the particles anyway. Whether it's been infected by one or 20 doesn't make that much of a difference at that point. Um, but a very important thing to keep in mind here is that the medication that is being used for the A2, ACE2 receptors is medication that is given to people who already have very serious illness. Now, these are people who are at risk of cardiovascular disease, especially at risk of heart failure. So at the moment, yes, there is, in theory, without it scientifically being proven, a chance that this medication that these people are taking might increase their risk of catching COVID. However, it is most definitely certain that if they stop taking the medication, they will get very ill. There's a very good chance that they will suffer from cardiovascular problems, including heart failure, which will get them in hospital. And that is a big problem at the moment for two reasons. One, 
the hospitals worldwide are already overstretched. There isn't enough resources. And the last thing that they need is a massive influx of people who have heart failure. But also, at the moment, the hospital is one of the biggest chances to catch COVID in the first place. Yeah. So if you stop taking your medication, which is going to make your body feel, you know, it's, it's, it's going to make your body function less well, therefore make yourself more susceptible to a disease. And yes, you may have less receptors around, but the receptors are still going to be there. It's an essential function of your body. You can't stop all of the receptors altogether or you would die very quickly anyway. Um, so it is one of those things where at at the very most, they might consider not using that medication in people who already are being treated for COVID. But even there, the question is whether that would be a wise decision, because you will make those people weaker by them not being able to have a proper functioning cardiovascular system. And that is a very big risk to take on something that has not scientifically proven to actually have an effect. Because, as I said, it's a, it's a very theoretical thing at the moment. Yes, COVID binds to ACE2 receptors. Yes, this medication upregulates, up increases the number of those receptors around. But it doesn't straight away mean that, therefore, you're also more likely to get ill. I mean, you're more likely to get ill if you're getting in contact with people who've got COVID. If you keep taking those medications whilst you're at home and you're not getting in contact with anyone, you're also not going to get it no matter how many receptors you've got. So it would be safe to assume that, you know, the people who are taking this uh, medication that contains um, uh, ACE inhibitors would probably still be better off if they continue to take it. Oh, yeah. Based on the current knowledge and the current science, most definitely. Yeah, based on what we know right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, coronavirus is now widely spread throughout uh, Europe and North America um, over the last month or so. And um, I have another question um, about um, uh, medicine that contains uh, hydroxychlorine sulfate, which is something that uh, the medics in South Korea, um, which was the second country that was majorly hit after China, um, like, for example, like about a month ago, like in late February, early March, reports were coming out of South Korea that the medics there, um, I don't know what the, what the medicine is called, but they, they were um, using medicine that contains uh, that um, chemical formula, hydrochlorochlorine sulfate, on patients. It's a variation of uh, chlorocorine and normally is something that's used uh, for uh, to treat uh, malaria or rheumatoid art arthritis, hopefully I said correctly, cases. Yeah. Uh, and in theory, it transports the zinc inside of the cells where it disables the RNA of the virus. Um, do you think that um, this is something that's worth trying and can it be applied, uh, for example, in Europe, where we are? I think here there's two things that we need to separate. Firstly, is the idea of the anti-malaria medication. And secondly, like the actual applications and the studies of those. And secondly, the whole zinc situation. So I'm going to talk about um, the anti-malaria medication first. Sure. Um, so a big thing with anti-malaria medication potentially being used as a treatment is specifically talking about hydroxychloroquine. Um, there was a study published earlier in March that suggested that this medication may be very effective at reducing viral load. Since then, there have been a lot of criticisms on this paper. And when I talk a lot, it's probably the most criticized paper that I have seen in a long time. And for a lot of very good reasons. 
Um, can you go a little bit more in depth about it, please? Yes, I will. Um, firstly, I will explain a little bit about the scientific background of publishing, so it explains some of the concerns a bit better further down the line. Thank you. When it comes to scientific publishing, what you usually do is you write a paper, you do your research, obviously, which takes a while. Um, then you write your paper and then you submit it to a journal and the journal will look at the paper and if they think it is something that fits within the scope of the journal, they will send it to experts in the field known as peer reviewers who will look at this paper, who will critically, critically analyze it and then give feedback to the journal and to the authors to say this is really good or there is problems here. Sometimes they can say more experiments need to be done here and here or they can just say, you know, there's major flaws in this paper and we shouldn't be publishing it. Are the peer reviewers other scientists? In yes. the respective fields? Yes, they are always scientists in respective fields. They're always active scientists in respective fields. Um, they need to have, depending on the, the, the publisher, they need to have a, you know, a good number of publications to show that they are an expert. Okay. And it is, for one, you usually need at least two peer reviewers, but it is very possible that the journal will find more if, for example, a paper, especially interdisciplinary papers that talk about a lot of different fields of science, or a very limited area of science, they find people who, like some people might be able to look at a mouse model and another people might be able to look at a particular disease and some other people might be able to look at some of the methodology or some of the statistics. But you will always get enough people to assess the whole paper. Um, and this is, as you can understand, it's a time-consuming process. For one, it takes the journal time to find peer reviewers who are suitable and to be reviewers who are able and willing to look at the paper, because for them, it's also a very time consuming process. You know, looking at a paper in, and, and critically analyze it can take several hours, or if not longer, if there's a lot of problems or if it's a very, very big paper. Um, and then usually this gets sent back to the authors. The authors make corrections, they make improvements, sometimes do additional experiments, and it can go through a couple of rounds before we say, okay, we're now confident with the information in this paper okay. and then you know it'll get accepted and it gets published so usually when you're looking at a paper being published you're looking at several months um, in case of corona uh, a lot of publishers are fast tracking these pro these papers so it means that they are taking the papers they are using them as a priority they are sending them out to peer reviewers quicker a lot of reviewers may already have a bunch of experts within a certain field of, the, of, of virology or similar related fields that have said that they are happy to help out. So they might be able to find people more quickly. Um, and therefore, they will try and publish it a bit quicker. But you're still usually looking at weeks at the minimum. Um, one of the ways to try and get information out there more quickly, which is one of the things that happened with this paper to start with, is you put it out on a... Um, on on a on on like bio, bio archive for example which is like a pre pre peer review pre publication service it's somewhere where people can say this is the paper i've written it hasn't been assessed yet but i'm putting the information out here so people can use that information in their study um we use it a, we used to call it a, a preprint server so it's basically everyone can put their studies over there but obviously the trick as well is that those studies have not been assessed by experts. So anyone can put any study there and it doesn't straight away mean that it's sound science. So this study was published initially on, on one of these preprint servers and then was submitted to, um, I wrote this down somewhere, it was submitted to 
the International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents. And the next day, it was accepted, which is a very, very quick timeline and very unlikely to mean that the paper has actually been peer-reviewed, has been assessed, has been sent back to the authors, has been improved. Another concern there is that one of the authors is actually the editor-in-chief of this journal. So obviously, there is a good chance that there is a conflict of interest over here going on where that paper has been accepted without it properly being peer-reviewed in an appropriate manner. Especially because the peer review, the, the peer review, some journals will make those public so that people can see what kind of commentary has been given on that paper, and this journal hasn't done that. So there is already a concern there that this paper has been published very quickly, uh, potentially without it being assessed in a thorough manner. Again, this is all potentially, obviously, as there hasn't been any peer review, um, peer review articles like made available. We don't know for certain, but. The, the speed by which, which it's been published and the fact that it's been published in an art by in a journal where one of the authors is the editor-in-chief is something that does raise concerns. I see. But since then, um, a lot of people have been criticizing this paper. So there is this platform online called PubPeer. And it's a, where, it's a place where people can discuss scientific articles that have been published and they can ask authors questions, but they all, can also raise concerns that they have found, and sometimes authors may be able to comment on that. For this article on Papier, I believe there has already been over 40 comments. Um, when we're looking at just the ethics, okay, the ethics background of the paper altogether, um, when it comes to clinical studies, which means studies where you're trying a certain drug under certain patients, you need to adhere to very strict clinical um, ethics approvals. Which makes sense because you need to make sure that your patients are safe and that we don't do all kinds of dangerous tests on people yes. um, without there being proper, you know, ethic regulation. Mm -hmm. In this case, the study is said to have been um, following patients for 14 days. The ethics approval has been given, has been uh, supplied on the 6th of March, according to the authors. But then the study has been completed on the 16th of March, which would only give 10 days. So if you followed people for 14 days, then that means that the ethics approval would have never been in place before you start the study. And it's pretty much unacceptable to do any clinical trial without um, publication, without um, ethics approval in place already. So the ethics of this study already raises some some questions we understand that this is an emergency we understand that some some rules may be bent but at the same time when it comes to trying a new drug or a drug that is designed for something completely different on patients then that's not something that you usually can do without at least getting some form of approval that's what i was going to be asking next i mean uh it it clearly sounds to me that there's a lot of issues and a lot of like rules have been broken with this uh, yeah. particular case. But, but here uh, you're not even looking at the scientific issue paper. These are just the, the, the ethical, like the publication ethics and the research ethics backgrounds. Like when it comes to the actual paper itself, um, they stated that they were, they were following people for 14 days, yet the data in the paper only showed the first six days. So what happened after those six days? You know, there's a very good chance this may not be the case, but we don't know because the information isn't there, that the patients that initially were showing improvement have actually gotten worse. 
You know, that data may not have followed their narrative, so they've not put it in their paper. Or it may not be the case, but we do not know, because if they say that they followed people for 14 days and they only published data for the first six days, then it makes me wonder what happened in the last eight days and why that information hasn't been included in the paper, especially if it's supposed to be really positive. There are six patients that have sort of disappeared from the information altogether. So awesome. they state that they have included 42 people in the study, but then the final reports only report on 36 patients. So what happened to those other six patients? They may have dropped out for whatever reason, or they may have died. We do not know because it's not being shared and it's not openly being commented on. When it comes to the clinical trials, usually, especially with medication, you look at a random, uh, a randomly controlled clinical trial, which means that all of the patients are being put into one pile and at random, some people get a treatment and some people do not. Because if you're going to specifically select for patients, then there's a lot of bias. In this case, the, paper, the people have not been randomly assigned. Um, in the methodology, they state that no patients under the age of 12 have been included. But then at the same time, if you look at patient details, it has at least one 10-year-old in there. So that's already inconsistent with the methodology that it's being reporting. It states that it's been tracing all patients with PCR um, every day. but then some of the people do not have uh, PCR record, uh, like PCR is, 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 is the way that they're testing for the virus, do not have results recorded. Some people they've stopped after a certain number of days, but that doesn't just because someone wasn't showing any viral load on day four doesn't mean it can't have come back at day six. You don't know unless you test that. So there is a lot of these kind of concerns that mean, doesn't necessarily mean that the that the study hasn't been done right. You know, it could very well be that the study has just been very poorly recorded, but the authors have not been responding to all of these questions in a satisfying manner. And as a result, the international community is getting more and more skeptical to the whole, um, you know, actual benefits by this drug. Because at the moment it's only being suggested into one study and that study now has a lot of, of, of potential problems with it. I see. Um, this, this is a very, very in-depth answer, which uh, I like. So, um, based, uh, like, if we, if we put aside for a moment the potential bias, and uh, it's safe to say that um, the data that the study has provided is inconclusive and almost blatantly wrong, and we can't really take a lot out of it. Yeah, based on the current data that have been provided, there's too many questions to give any definite answer as to whether or not this medication is useful. And it is important to keep in mind that um, malaria medication takes a huge toll on the body. It's, it's, you know, it makes people very ill. If you tend, to, if you go to a region where malaria is endemic, where there is a lot of malaria around, um, then you get anti-malaria medication, but people will warn you against using it unless you absolutely need it, because it can cause quite a lot of very severe side effects. Such as? So uh, it, it can make people very sick, very nauseous. That um, can make people hallucinate. Oh. So it's one of these things that, you know, if you're going to be really sick, you're going to vomit. Then for one, you're not able to keep nutrients in. Two, you're more likely to get dehydrated. As a result, your immune system takes a hit. Which obviously for people who are also fighting COVID can be a very can be a final nail in the coffin. 
Yeah. And it's one of those things where it needs to be very, very carefully controlled. It's not a harmless treatment that you'll just throw at people. And in the worst case scenario, it doesn't work. In this case, if you're going to give people this medication, chances are you're making them very ill on those medications. And so you need to have, you know, you need to have a good reason for, for using this. And at the moment, it is obviously quite a dangerous thing that there is a paper out there that says, oh, this is a fantastic cure and it'll work. When it may not, and giving people this medication, when it may not at all work, can actually have quite severe side effects. I see. Um, the next question is not just about um, this particular paper, but just like others, because there, there will be others popping out currently and in the near future. Um, obviously, we have a very uh, we have established rules, and we have agreed upon what's acceptable and whatnot. And you just like talk, you know you talk me through the process of you know what the standard process is and how things are done. But uh, considering that we have a very uh, dire and very 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 serious uh, situation, in your personal opinion. Um, how acceptable it is to bend the rules a little bit and what is acceptable and how far can we go in um, rushing things and going out of our usual way a little bit in order to try to get answers quicker like where do we draw the line and how 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 much leeway can it, can we give i mean to a certain point we are already rushing things a lot of studies that require ethics approval it usually takes months upon months to get ethics approval and the fact that these ethics approvals are now being given over the course of weeks means that ethics bodies are getting together specifically to sort this all out quickly uh, and therefore you know there's already a lot of actions being taken to make sure that this research can be done more quickly it's very important to understand that if research is being rushed and it's not being carried out in an appropriate manner yes you might come to the solution and the medication and whatever more quickly but it's far more likely that you're actually accidentally going to kill more patients or make people suffer a lot more anyone who works in research you're like people often think that research is a relatively straight line from point a to a to point b but in fact most of your tests most of your thoughts most of your experiments will not work and only very few things will work in the end. So when we're testing for new antibiotics, for example, we may test like six or 7,000 different subs uh, substances to find only one or two potentially useful drugs. So can you give people like 7,000 different drugs or different compounds to see if something works? With a good chance that a lot of them are going to make, make people far more ill. Uh, and that's obviously a very um, serious question to ask because the the chances are that you're not going to find anything more quickly. The chances are more that you're going to make a lot of people more ill, more miserable, and kill, potentially kill them. As well as what happens in, for example, this study, that you find something that seems to be working well, um, and you put it out there as a miracle cure, which you know might give people a lot of false hope, might, um, at best, might put a lot of people's lives at risk at worst. It's very, very, very important that we do this We do this as quickly as we can, but still make sure that research is still being carried out in a way that we know is one, safe, and two, trustworthy. And this is also on a more of a longer term thinking. I know that at the moment, 
longer term thinking might seem a bit of a, uh, a difficult, you know, concept. But if you're going to create a medication now that actually ends up killing quite a lot of patients, then it means that people in the long run will be more skeptical of it. If we find, if you, if you look at the, the, the whole anti-vaccination uh, movement worldwide, there is a lot of criticisms there on vaccinations not being tested properly. So if you now create a vaccine that will work really quickly, but you put it on the market in two weeks' time without sufficient testing, chances are that on the long run, it will actually make that vaccine far less effective because people will refuse to take it. I see. So it is one of those things that it's difficult. We all want the answer, but we all also need to understand that science is a, is a process that takes a long time and it cannot be rushed whilst still expecting high quality results and trustable outcomes. That so I sense. think when, when it really comes to where the line is drawn, it's like we need to try and make sure research into these fields is prioritized, that people don't have to wait for weeks or months on approvals or for weeks and months on resources. But at the same time, we still need to make sure that the research itself is being carried out in an appropriate manner. When it comes to publishing papers as, as a, from a scientific publisher's point of view, I think we should be more lenient about what we ask authors to do. Like usually if you have revisions, people will say, oh, this paper is quite good, but it would be stronger if you carry out these and these and these tests. Mm -hmm. I think at this point, it'd be in the interest of all researchers if we are more lenient and go like, well, you know, these tests would make it better. But what is currently standing is still solid. And then instead of asking people to do more tests and everything before the information is being shared, um, ask people to be more conservative in their statements. You know, if you get a medication that might potentially work, don't straight away say, this will cure people. This has, you know, make sure that it's very clear that there is actually a potential that this may be working and that it requires further testing. And that way you can start looking into it at perhaps a larger scale, starting to implement it in more people, but you also are very withholding as in making sure that people understand that it is very early days of research and we do not know for certain if it is going to work or not. That sounds reasonable to me. Um, since you mentioned that um, these days um, you have uh, a lot of uh, papers coming your way and you, look, you read more than you ever have, um, have there been any any more papers or anything interesting that's coming your way uh, particularly in the in the last month since the situation globally has escalated quite a bit um is there anything interesting that you've come across anything uh, any uh, publications uh, any papers anything that you want to mention that you think it's worth our attention and um... the researchers attention I mean, at the moment, there is an awful lot out there by a lot of publishers. At the moment, I'm mainly being published by us. And a lot of what is being published with us, I can't actually talk about because when something is being considered, it's a confidential documentation. That's okay. So obviously, that is something that I can't talk about anyway. Sure. Um, Only talk about things that you're comfortable talking about. Uh, no, definitely. But obviously, it's also something that I simply cannot do, whether I'd be comfortable with it or not. But I sure. think... Like I see some of the some of the Corona papers. I do not necessarily see all of the Corona papers because in the end, I mainly get involved in those papers where there is concerns, okay. as opposed to everything. So obviously, a lot of the papers that I'm looking at are papers where the research may not have been done very well, or where there is other forms of concerns that we have to look at. 
I do think one of the real big things in science at the moment is that um, I've always I've always worked for an open access publisher. So there's two big ways of publishing science. You have um, uh, conscription, uh, subscriptions uh, typed um, publishing and open access publishing. And the big difference is with subscription publishers is the people who want to read the articles pay a, a sum of money, and that can sometimes be a large amount of money to get access to the research. Open access publishing, means that the authors pay to get their article published. As a result, everyone can see the papers for free. Because in the end, you know, publishing is an industry. Sometimes uh, there is definitely publishers that have a lot of profit in mind, but also, you know, there is a lot of researchers, there's a lot of scientific work being done in the background of publishing. And in the end, it's, it's a very long process. It takes a lot of people to make a scientific publishing, um, a scientific publisher run. And these are all people who are often very highly educated. These are all people who also, you know, are doing this full time as their job and they need to be paid. It's using the service, it's using the software. So in the end, for sharing science, someone needs to pay. And it's either the people who are reading it, which means that therefore it becomes a very elite thing because you can only see the best research if you can pay the most for it. Or it becomes a situation where the authors pay, at which point it might make it difficult for some people to publish their research because they may not have the funds to pay for publishing. So either way, you know, there are pros and cons, but open access publishing means that everyone can read what is being published. And that is something that I'm a big fan of um, because I was always getting very frustrated as a student by studies that might be very promising, but then I had to pay like 60 pounds to get access for 24 hours, which now it's not a problem, but when I was a student, I often didn't have that kind of cash, especially not if you're looking at like 50 or 60 papers. Understandable. Um, and for a long time, open access publishing was being done by some people, but not by a lot. And this whole coronavirus uh, situation has sort of opened up scientific publishing to a lot of people. There's a lot of publishers who are usually subscription only, so people have to pay a lot of money to see the articles that are now bringing COVID-related papers out for everyone to read. And I think that is a very interesting um you know, change in publishing, because it has also shown that having these papers out there and open available for everyone, more researchers can do better work more quickly. Yeah, I don't really know anything about this. And um, I didn't know about um, those uh, two models. I'm very, uh, I'm very surprised to hear about the subscription model. Um, I personally, from, from what you've told me just now, um, I think um, the open access um, model makes more sense. Um, I understand that uh, it is an industry and it has to like it has to be um it has it has to be sustainable if not profitable at least yeah, yeah. um but uh, but I think um um especially with the um, the global system that we have now where researchers from universities all across the world universities and uh, companies etc everyone can like uh, um connect with one another and exchange ideas and discuss uh, research and stuff like that. I think it makes a lot more sense to have the open access one because um, it, it sounds like, in my mind, like something that would be, within the long term, uh, bring out better results across the board for everybody. Because it, yes. it I mean, encourages it allows... research. Yeah, it allows sharing of research a lot more. But also, you should also, in addition to the whole the funding issue of it, you need to also keep in mind that 
the concept of open access publishing also opens an entire new avenue of predatory publishing, where there are certain publishers who say they do the peer review, who say they assess articles carefully, but they will basically publish anything as long as you pay them. And that is where it becomes a very dangerous model uh, if it's not applied and um, tested, like, or at least if, if, if publishers are not being held responsible for what they published. Because, you know, as we were talking about the article earlier, I do not know if that journal specifically is a, pro is a predatory journal. I do not want to make any assumptions or, or um, you know, I don't want to uh, put any allegations out there. But the fact that that part article has been published within a day definitely makes you wonder how well that has been assessed. But a lot of people who don't have the kind of background knowledge of science, who are not quite a science septic, uh, skeptic, they might see, oh, it's being published in a scientific journal, therefore we can trust it. It's not always the case. There is definitely a lot of journals out there who will publish anything, no matter how poor or how bad the science. There's even been tests being done when people have literally just written a story and submitted it to the journal as a scientific article, and that's been published in a day. Because all they care about is that the author is paying. So the author is giving them their money so they don't care how good the paper is. And obviously that is something that in a subscription journal you would not see. So whereas open access is great because it allows the sharing of, of, of knowledge and sharing of papers far more quickly, it's also very important that especially researchers but also people of the general public are still being very careful by what they believe what is being published online. And obviously that is where a lot of the current situations come from, a paper is being published, it's not being criticized properly. And as a result, a lot of misinformation might get out there. I see. But um, like bottom line, just um, uh, regarding what my question is, th there, there isn't any, anything specific that's come your way recently that you want to talk about. No, I wouldn't say there's any specific paper. There's just been so much out there, so much information. So the information is changing so quickly. A paper that was interesting two weeks ago may no longer be interesting because already new information has been put out there. So if I give papers now that I think are now very interesting, you know, by the time people are going to listen, it might already be out of date science anyway. That makes sense. Okay, sure. Let's get back to the little bit simpler discussion <laughs> <laughs> and uh, talk about like the virus uh, once again. I want to talk to you about... Um, the bro science. You know what that is, right? The sorry, the what science? The bro science. Uh, bro science is a term. I'm just going to explain it to everybody because a lot of people who are listening probably not going to know either. So bro science is like what bros tell each other. Like uh, it's, it's a job that came out of like uh, of like uh, the gym buddies. Like for example, people who's like training in the gym, so they'll be like, bro, like forget about like uh, what, what the doctors say, like this is like the right way to like lift and like do it. And like, you know, this, this is where bro science comes from. And okay, um, yeah. there, there, is a, there is a lot of that currently on the internet um, and on social media, particularly on the different platforms um, in, um, in, re in, in regarding to like um, the coronavirus and how we, sh how we should handle it and whatnot. So let's talk about like that a little bit because I think it's, um, it's important to get like um, information out of uh, of, um, of what's uh, what actually works, what doesn't work, because I think um, you, you you can you can probably debunk a lot of it, and I, I can talk I, I can I will mention a few things that I've heard personally, and maybe you can add a couple that you've heard, um, and hopefully we can 
clarify like things a little bit for people. So the first one I've heard is um, if you crank up the the heat in the sauna and just like stand in the sauna for a while, like in, in a while, that that would kill it. No, that's definitely a hoax. Okay, why? Um, when it comes to it, so firstly. There's a lot of stories about turning up heat, whether that's being in a sauna or drinking hot drinks or perhaps blow drying your face and nose and so on. And I say if the temperature goes above like 27 degrees or so on, well, that is clearly not the case. As we said before, viruses infect your cells, they hijack your cells, and your body is regulated at 37 degrees Celsius or like. 98.6 Fahrenheit, I think, for people who have not really converted to metric yet. Um, so the virus is thriving, is doing very well, and is thriving at 37 Celsius. So definitely um, anything over 27 degrees will kill it is clearly not the case. But also when you're going to be in a sauna, perhaps the, uh, the, the viruses on the outside of your cell might die when they've been exposed or might at least disintegrate when they've been exposed to that heat for too long. But when you're in a sauna, your internal temperature is still going to be 37 degrees because our bodies are very, very, very good at regulating its temperature and we do not do very well with the temperature being changed ever so slightly because basically all of our proteins will no longer stop working, which is why a fever over 40 degrees Celsius tends to give people seizures and might kill. So if you're going to sit in a sauna, up the temperature to very high, whatever is in your body is still going to be at 37 degrees Celsius, and it's still going to be working perfectly fine at 37 degrees Celsius. Well, they believe that if they inhale the super hot air from the sauna, they might purify their lungs, per se. It would kill your body cells more quickly. Well, I mean, in the end, when the virus is inside you, it is inside your so the only way that you would kill that is by killing your own cells. So by the time that, you know, that inhaling of that air, as soon as that hits your lungs, it's already cooled down an awful lot because otherwise you would literally be scalding your lungs as soon as you walk into the sauna and pretty much die. I don't know if you've ever, like, you know, accidentally drank tea that was too hot or accidentally inhaled tea that was too hot. I've definitely done that. And it yes. is incredibly painful. Yes, it is. Um, obviously a sauna would not be any different when you're inhaling throughout through your mouth or th through your nose by the time it hits your lungs it's already cooled down quite significantly okay for the point of argument let's say that you do inhale it and, and the actual air does go in your lungs will that be sufficient enough to kill the virus that has already infected your lung cells well I mean it is already in your cells Cells are very strictly regulated at 37 degrees. Okay. So, you know, literally the only way that you could kill them once they're in your cells is by killing those cells, which is basically what your own body is trying to do anyway by creating a, a, a fever. So it's not going to make any difference compared to your own immune system. It's not going to make it better or worse. Okay, so we've debunked this one. It's false. Um... I've heard a lot of people say, and I mean like thousands and thousands of people probably say this. Um, it's just like it's just like the flu, you know, like you know, like during the autumn, like winter, you're more likely to get it, but like soon spring and summer are gonna roll around and like we'll be fine, like we're not gonna get it. It's just a seasonal thing. True or false? Um, that's a difficult one to answer. Uh, in a way, 
It is not that different from flu. But the big problem there is people who say it is just a flu massively underestimate the danger of flu. Now, if we're looking at the UK alone, in 2014 and 15, that killed 28,330 people. In 2017 and 2018, it killed over 26,500 people in the UK. Yikes. That's the UK alone. So I think a big problem for us as a society is that we have almost merged a cold and the flu together into one disease. And obviously a cold isn't very severe. Um, the flu is very severe or can be very severe and is very deadly. So when I say corona is not that different from flu, I don't mean it as in, oh, corona is not dangerous. It's like flu is really dangerous and we should take it as serious as we do corona. However, there is a big difference here where the people who are most at uh, risk of flu or especially of dying of flu or having very serious complications are also the people are the prime targets for vaccinations. So by this, you need to think of like the elderly, people pregnant, people who, for example, have asthma, um, but also healthcare workers. They all get flu vaccinations every year. Yeah. And although a flu vaccination is not always 100% protective against the flu virus, it does definitely protect you against the more severe side effects. So people who have had a flu vaccination, even if they do catch flu afterwards, they are far less significantly ill. I have like questions about vaccines like coming later on particularly. Yes. I was, I was going we'll to do. ask you about that more in depth later on, but please go ahead. Yeah, but yeah, so basically one of the big problems now is that uh, COVID, which also targets a lot of the same people that are being targeted by flu, none of these people have had any vaccinations because we don't have a vaccination. You know, the kind of infection that we now see with, with COVID in our current population would be very similar to the kind of flu that we would see in our population if it had been the first time that we'd been seen, seeing this flu and there was no vaccine. Okay. And I think another thing that is worth keeping in mind is that for a large number of people, corona is going to be a very mild disease. There is estimations at the moment that perhaps up to 40% of people are not showing any symptoms at all. And these, that, that means like not even mild symptoms. Potentially, they don't show anything. So obviously, for those people, it's going to be a very, very mild disease. But at the same time, it's also killing thousands. Yes. And it's one of those things where, in a way, I am against this whole trying to make COVID uh, an absolute doom scenario. I mean, yes, it's dangerous. If you looked at, this, at, at like SARS, the, the the death rate of SARS was nine percent, and the death rate death rate the death rate of MERS was forty percent. So those de those were much much more severe. I have if a question at, about yeah, that particularly also. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, so overall, it is not anywhere near as big. But a big problem at the moment is that because so many people are getting ill at the same time, and importantly. Healthcare workers are getting ill at the same time because they haven't got any protection either. There is a lot of people who do not have to die from COVID, uh, from SARS-CoV-2, because you know they are going to be severely ill. But if we had the proper healthcare, they would have been able to survive. They would have been able to recover. But we don't have the right number of, of, of health. We don't have the, the right supplies to look after them because too many people are getting ill in too short a time. As a result, therefore, a lot of the people who are now dying would have potentially been saved. 
And that is obviously a, the real tragedy that goes behind this as well. I see. And this, and this is why the, um, uh, the quarantine measures are put in place, right? To make yeah. sure that um, we, can, we can delay the spread um, yeah. as much as possible. Obviously, we can't really save people right as of right now, but if we can delay it, maybe at a later point, we could be able to do more about it. Yeah, or just spread it out so that not everyone gets ill at the same time. I mean, one of the things that is important to keep in mind is just because there's COVID going on doesn't mean that other pe people are not get still getting ill from other stuff. Yeah. Like, people are still getting flu on top of this. People are still getting cancer. They're still getting strokes. They're still getting heart disease. It's not just, just this disease. Um, and this time of year is always notoriously um, dangerous for health services, at least in the UK and in a lot of Western Europe. Because flu season is still ongoing. This yep. time of year is always a time when it's very busy for healthcare um, in the UK. And now, on top of that, they all of a sudden have thousands of extra patients, doctors that are getting ill far more likely than before, and not enough supplies to look after the patients. And that is what makes this very dangerous. Um, but at the same time, if we were to say overall people will be all right the vast majority of people will not get so so ill and people will no longer do social distancing because people will then underestimate the danger of disease because they will say oh it is just whereas i would say it is flu stay home you now if you don't you know it's flu get your flu jab no matter what unless you're allergic get your flu jab even if you're not going to be you know i'm i'm not particularly at risk for flu i'm not in any of the of the risk groups but my grandparents, or my elderly neighbours, or my colleagues, you know, I'm, my neighbour may have a, a heart transplant that I don't know about. And if I get the flu, they might die of it. You know, and that's one of the things that people very often underestimate, is that flu is very dangerous. It kills a lot of people every year. Worldwide, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of people every year. So when people say, oh, it's fine, it's just like flu, I'm like, well, this is a problem. Because it is, in a way, just like flu, which is a very, very dangerous disease. Yep. So, as winter goes away and as the warmer months start um, coming in, um, could we potentially see um, a decrease, a slight decrease, for example, in the rate of infection? And um, if we do see that, uh, could that possibly be because of um, the weather, or could it be that uh, could it be due to other factors? It, does weather play any factor, any major factor in this? In the um, spread of it infection, is, it is too early to say. We too do not know yeah. yet if Corona is going to be affected by the environment. I mean, if you're looking, for example, at the moment on. The U.S. South Coast, there is, you know, there's a, a rampant infection in California, which tends to be much warmer than here. I'm just gonna quickly Google what the current temperatures are in California. Sure. Weather forecast. You know, so the average temperatures in California apparently go up to about 21 degrees Celsius, which is what we would That's late summer spring for us. kind of time exactly. Yet over in the U in the the USA, they now have the highest number of infections worldwide. They've overtaken China, and actually, they have more than China and Italy have reported combined. With 
um, the the East Coast. It is the East Coast, isn't it? It's being, or it was, I think it's the East Coast, being a big area, a big hub of infections at the moment. So, you know, Asia is a very big country. There are certain regions in Asia where, it's, where Italy is a lot warmer than it is over here. And they're still dealing with a larger infection than we have right now. Yes. So it is very dangerous to say that once the weather changes, the infection goes down because we do not know that for certain. Yeah. We don't, we don't um, have uh, substantial information to confirm that. No. So we'll no, have to say probably not, based on what oh, we've yeah. seen. Okay. Based on what we're seeing at the moment, it's unlikely. Let's talk about <clears throat> masks and gloves and hand sanitizer and whatnot. Um, a lot of people, like if you go outside, like you know, people are like keeping like social distances and whatnot, and you see like a lot of people like wearing gloves and just like. Um, over-the-counter the uh, face masks you can buy like any pharmacy basically even like a lot of the supermarkets sell them um, generally not just now but generally they do um, <clears throat> and people people um, like the common belief is that that would like prevent um, or slow down not prevent but slow down the, the spread of the infection but I've heard um, I've heard a professor that's based off the United States, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he said that uh, um, if you've already contracted the virus, um, having a face ma mask on might uh, limit the spread because, you know, a lot, a lot of the, um, a lot, for example, droplets, so, 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 droplets yeah, yeah, um, will be caught in the mask instead of like getting outside, but it wouldn't actually do much uh, when it comes to um, an, a non-infected person uh, contra contracting the the virus so how effective are gloves um masks and like hand sanitizer so when it comes to masks there is a whole range of different kinds of masks and a lot of them are not particularly safe from bacteria let's say um, the general white ones or like light green ones that we can just like pick up at the farms those were the one those would be the ones that most would get yeah they're not gonna necessarily stop you from getting ill um no. Because air is still being pulled in across the sides of those masks, and the viruses are not going to go like, oh, there's a mask, go in here. No, you're still inhaling that air throughout all of the gaps in the masks. The only masks that would really protect you are the, like, I can't remember the FFNFPF, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but they're specific filter masks that are used in infectious wards, for example. The problem is that they will only be effective if they have been fitted to your face and you have learned how to put them on and how to take them off safely. And when doctors do these, I think once a year, they do tests where they need to have the mask on and they get like, um, I think it's like aspartame um, sprayed in a hood around their head, kinds of things. If they can taste the aspartame, um, then they've they they failed that test, which means that the mask is either not in the correct size or it hasn't been applied properly. So you should not get anything coming through. Now these are very extensive tests that the vast majority of people will not have come th going, gone through. Yes. Now, like these kind of masks, if you see the doctor taking them off after a shift, it has got it like it leaves bruises or at least uh, signs of where this mask has been because it is an actual tight around your face. They're incredibly uncomfortable. On top of that, you need to learn how to remove your PPE appropriately. Like when we are in a microbiology lab, one of the first things you learn is how to remove your gloves without touching anything with the gloves. 
know, there's one thing to wear gloves, but if you're then going to touch stuff, like touch your hands again with those gloves whilst you take the gloves off, then there was no point in wearing the gloves in the first time. Um, and the vast majority of people do not know how to do that. It, in, at best, it gives people a false sense of security because like, when you go to the supermarket and you're wearing your gloves, you might not get the virus straight on your hands, but you're still touching all of the other surfaces that people are touching. And you then take all of those products back into your house. So it's not going to make that much of a difference. Like the biggest help is to wash your hands frequently and properly, which that by itself has been a big problem for a very long time. I mean, for years and years, I've been horrified by when I go into like public bathrooms and I see people who quickly dip their fingertips under the tap and then use a hot air dryer. And I'm like, well, I'm not air dryer again because clearly they didn't wash their hands properly and now it's infested with everything they used to live on their hands because they didn't wash it properly um it's one of those you know people really it, it gives them a, a, a feeling that they're safe but at the same time you know if you take that mask off with your hands and you haven't washed your hands properly at that point that whole mask didn't ever you know there was there was no use to it now if we had a very very large Supply of masks, of gloves, and so on. I'd say give people that false sense of protection, um, and that'll make you know, if at, at the very least, perhaps people are less likely to touch their face all day long. But considering that doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals are currently not actually able to get the right masks and not able to get gloves in certain cases, I think it's very wrong for people of the general public to use masks when they don't know how to use them properly, and it's not really going to protect them in the first place. And those people who actually do need them, because they are going to be in very close contact with people who are ill. Obviously, there's a difference between you walking down the supermarket and someone else in the supermarket also potentially being ill, and you trying to like intub intubate, in, in, intubate, I think that's the word, when you basically put a respiratory, respiratory equipment down someone's throat of someone who you know has COVID. That's a completely different level of contact, at which point a mask is reducing the risk. It won't even completely stop it, but it will reduce it. But the vast reason of why people are wearing those masks is to protect the patient and not so much to protect themselves. You know, when my dentist will come over to me and will like wear a face mask, it's to make sure that they don't accidentally like spit in your mouth or, you know, not like a proper spit, but you get what I mean. Yes. When you have surgeons on the surgical ward, they're wearing those face masks to protect, to prevent themselves from infecting your wounds, not to protect themselves from your body. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so, um, if you had to give pe pe um, people of the general public, like myself and like many others, advice on, like, like a simple advice on uh, what they can do, for example, at home, to like, sanitize themselves like what will, what will actually work and what would be what what's a good thing to do at home that everybody can do i think the best thing to do is one make sure that you wash your hands properly every time you've been outside or you've touched something from outside yeah. um it's a good um it's a good habit to make sure that you wash your doorknobs especially the one on the outside of your house uh, at least once a day but ideally every time that someone has come to the house uh, I'd say make sure that you sanitize your phone every time that you have been out. Um, and after you've cleaned your phone, wash your hands. 
because obviously you've just touched your phone and your phone was probably not clean. So wash your hands again. Um, and just, you know, if you don't need to go outside, don't go outside. The vast majority of people will be fine, but you don't know if you're going to be the one that is not going to be fine. The, vast, the, the biggest chance that if you're young, chances that you are going to be fine are bigger, but they're not guaranteed. Now, the, 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 most of the people who die are elderly or have underlying health, health issues, but it doesn't mean that just because you're younger or healthier doesn't mean you can't get very ill of it or you can't die. You're just less likely to. Yeah, one thing um, that I've uh, seen a lot of on the internet that makes me mad, quite frankly, because yeah. of because people people out there, some people out there are stupid. Um, like people people on social media, like to try to get like likes and whatnot. Uh, have you heard of the Corona Challenge? You know what that where is? Where people like are licking yeah yeah that stuff. yeah yeah and uh, they'll they'll get on the bus and they'll touch like the handles and whatnot, particularly uh, and. Uh, <laughs> one, one thing that I saw a couple of days ago was there was a teenager who um, liked the toilet seat uh, uh, to do the corona challenge and then was sent to hospital and diagnosed with corona. Yeah. Now, obviously, there is no guarantee that he actually got a toilet seat. It's not one of the most likely places being yeah. transferred, but it does show that just because you're young doesn't mean you're not going to get very ill of it. And also... Um, a couple of days ago, it's the 29th of March right now, it's a Sunday, we're, this is the last weekend of uh, March currently, we're recording this podcast on a couple of days ago. Um, a young woman, aged 21, uh, had passed away in the United Kingdom due to coronavirus, and it is reported that she had like no underlying diseases, so she, she, she wasn't smoking, she wasn't at risk, no, no, yeah. no, 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 basically a, health, a, a young healthy woman, yeah, and well, uh, she passed away, so... The-, the same happens with flu. You know, like I'm not particularly in, a, in the target population now where I could die, but I remember um, when swine flu hit the UK, I was doing a, a placement year and someone in my office who was the age that I am now, um, so like early 30s, and she basically got into hospital, got into IT, uh, the ICU, and the, base, the family was initially told to say their goodbyes because they didn't think she would make the next day. Now, eventually she did pull through, but it took her three months to recover from that. Even though she was healthy, she had no underlying health conditions, she was fine, she was not in a target demographic. It's less likely, but less likely doesn't mean impossible. That makes sense. I think what we can take away from this is Though younger, healthier people are um, not put in a risk group and are less likely to um, be very ill. Like, nobody is safe, guys. Nobody is safe. And uh, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Use your brains more. Don't take useless risks, at the very least, because every time that you take that risk, you put other people's lives at risk as well. Yeah, especially not for uh, online notoriety. It's just not worth it. Um, Any other myths that you've seen about uh, that you want to well, discuss i've seen myths where people say that drinking lots of water prevents covid because therefore the virus will go down in your stomach and does it um no well i mean obviously what's in your throat might go down to your stomach but that doesn't negate everything that you're inhaling i see um and also some of the coronavirus has already been able to show that it affects through the eyes because obviously the eyes with the tear ducts will connect to your to to the back of your throat and therefore also potentially to your um respiratory system drinking 
enough water it's not a bad idea staying hydrated definitely boosts your immune system or if not doesn't perhaps boost but it definitely prevents it from not working quite as well but drinking water by itself is not going to give you a lower risk of of coronavirus um i've seen several posts that there's basically just a whole list of recommendations of miracle tips to prevent getting covid that had been sent by one hospital or another whenever you get these kind of emails or if you get them in a text on whatsapp or whatever just discard them they're never true hospitals do not have magical tips to stop yourself from coronavirus the only thing that they can tell you is don't go out and wash your hands and anything beyond that is not being sent by a hospital. It is a hoax. There may be things in there that are true. The vast majority most likely is not true. Just ignore it. And even if they did, hospitals currently are so so over uh, overburdened that the last thing they're going to do is like try to um, yeah. send people like messages via different media. Uh, Besides, if it was there, there are more that important that things to do right work, now. It would, it would be world news right now. It yes. would be, you know... It would be broadcast on every single outlet or in not okay, but every the fact that it isn't means that it's most likely don't fall for it. Okay. And then I think um Oh yeah, and I think also you need to be really careful for people who will talk about certain health foods that will prevent you from getting corona. Like I've seen it about garlic, I've seen it about lemons, all of these things. They're not there's no scientific evidence for it whatsoever. I mean, you know, go and eat two bulbs of garlic. That definitely makes sure that people keep their distance from you and as such you won't get ill. That's a different matter altogether. It's not actually, you know. Garlic has been shown to have antimicrobial properties, as in antibacterial properties. It by itself is not going to kill a lung, or help a lung infection. It might help boost your resistance against certain infections. But that, again, is bacterial, not even viral. So that is obviously a problem there altogether already. And lemon has vitamin C, right? Yeah, and vitamin C obviously is important for your health system. But if the only thing that you need to make sure you fight corona is sufficient levels of vitamin C, then the vast majority of people would not get ill. Yes. So, though foods like that are healthy for you and are good for you, and you should have them in the correct portions, they're not magic. No. They're not going to stop you from getting corona altogether. Okay. So, um, what are your thoughts currently on uh, <clears throat> how the NHS, particularly in the United Kingdom, is handling this, and how are um, medical services throughout Europe, in particularly, are handling this? Um, go ahead. I, it's it's difficult for me to give too great an, a like a response to this because I'm not a healthcare worker, uh, and obviously I only have access to information being shared in the media, and that's only limited. I think the NHS is having a very difficult task at the moment because the NHS has been massively underfunded for a very long time. It's been struggling with patient numbers for a while. I think back in November, there were reports of like ambulances queuing for two hours to be able to even deliver their patients to the hospitals. Um, so considering of the of 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 the of the the limited number of people that they have, the, the limited number of beds that they have. Um, I think that the NHS is doing an admirable job. But obviously, a lot of people are still going to die needlessly if we don't stem the tide, because we simply won't have the resources to look after 
to look after people uh, properly in the way that they need. Um, I think in a way it's outrageous that the NHS has been forced to rent beds from private hospitals. I think situations like these, these kind of outbreaks, you would expect that private hospitals can be forced to take on patients. Um, but in the end, you know, sometimes money speaks louder than human needs, I suppose. Uh, I have, I've, I've got a lot of respect for Germany at the moment. Germany has been doing really well on testing people very quickly, very early, which gives a much better idea of the actual death rate or the danger, the infectious rate of the diseases. Because if you're only testing people that are already showing very severe symptoms, then it's always going to look worse. Um, but Germany is doing relatively well. Uh, to the point that they are actually taking up patients from other European countries at the moment. Um, so I think that is great. So places where they're currently starting to get overwhelmed by patients, Germany is like, we have space, we have more equipment at the moment. Obviously, if the number of infections in Germany goes up, they may no longer be able to do it. But at the moment, they have willingly taken on patients into their own hospitals from other countries to look after them, which I think is great. That is very um, nice of them to do. And Germany is actually doing uh, uh, pretty well, like considering the situation that they're in, because they're um, during. I've, I've been looking at like data of like the performance of different countries uh, throughout uh, March of 2020, and um, Germany is like consistently like the fifth or like the sixth country, like somewhere in that range in uh, reported cases. Um, yet their yet their um, death count in consider in, in comparison to like other countries is much much lower. So uh, yes, I don't know what they're it... doing, but they seem to be like taking you know just looking at the numbers. Like I'll have to assume that they're taking be mean, better care on average. Um, it is to, worth to the also mentioning in critical, that still uh, in Germany winter sports and the fact that they were healthy and young enough to go on to winter sports means that it's also very likely that they were having a lot the most of the initially reported infections in germany were part of a population that was less likely to die in the first place so there is in germany itself there is concerns that when it starts to hit now it's starting to hit the more general population that the death rate may go up but again that's all speculation uh, for further on. One of the things that Germany has done really, really well is they've been doing a lot of testing and therefore they've been able to contain people more quickly. Because as we mentioned earlier, there is a lot of people who are not showing any symptoms at all. It's one thing where, you know, in the UK and in the Netherlands, at least I know for, well, for a long time, they were saying, stay at home if you've got fever and a cough. But if up to 40% are not even showing a fever off, that means that two in five people who are infected are still going out there spreading the disease without even knowing that they have the disease. Um, places like South Korea and, and Germany have been doing much better where they've gone like, right, this person is infected. We're now going to test everyone around them. And as such, then also isolate everyone who is having the disease, even if they're not showing symptoms, which makes it easier to contain. But I'm very interested to see what's going to happen to Germany in the next couple of weeks. And hopefully um, they've really been able to maintain it of, of, or, or, or contain it to the um, younger population, so to speak, rather than having a, a big hit on their elderly. Let's hope so. So um, 
How do you think uh, the things will change in the near future? That means like the next few months, spring, summer, like currently in the situation, like uh, in the UK in, and in Europe, um, where do you think that we're going to go overall? This means like, how is the how, how do you reckon the NHS and the medical systems are going to adapt? Do you think that the governments are going to um, adapt further? And in the long term, um, this, this will probably... I mean, it's 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 already changed, but but this will probably change our society, like, no matter what country we're in, like for years to come. Um, what do you think is gonna happen in the future from here on out? Um, I find it very difficult to make predictions because a lot of it depends an awful lot on what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. If this social distancing is showing to make a big difference. Um, then it's going to be very different from if it doesn't show much difference at all. Um, and really, I'm not an epidemi epidemiologist or or even a healthcare professional, like a healthcare services professional. Um, overall, it's going to make a difference. But also, I do think that all our communities are going to change. A lot of the way that the changes are going to be is going to be more likely due to the recession that is almost definitely going to hit many many countries now um whether it's a small or a big recession that always always has a big effect on the population but when it really comes to diseases overall the next couple of years people might be more careful and then after that we're going to forget about the dangers as we said you know people who say this is an unprecedented situation it's like it's an unprecedented situation for our current for our current generations but this is literally not different at all from when polio used to go rampant or measles used to go rampant or, you know, diphtheria or... Um, and a lot of the things that people used to do, the, the kind of ways that they used to keep the stuff safe, they used to keep things clean, they used to keep certain distances. Over the years that is eroded because we no longer had to be afraid of those diseases. COVID now is going to have really put some fear in people's hearts and in people's minds. I have no doubts that in 20, 30 years from now, if we do manage to get a vaccination in the first place, that there will be parents who will refuse to give their kids a COVID vaccination because it is just a harmless childhood disease. Completely overseeing the kind of situation that we were in now, because we are already forgetting the kind of quarantines that were being put in place for when my dad got diphtheria or when my mum's family used to get ill and you wouldn't be able to go anywhere for three months. Um, and that is not that long ago. So I think I think it's very difficult to say what is going to happen on the long run, but I do feel that the further we move away from this, especially eventually if we do get a vaccine, therefore people don't really have to be very afraid of it anymore, the more people will forget how afraid we should be of these kind of diseases. One thing that worries me personally is that... Um, um... In, in the next few months, the next year, a couple of years, you know, however long the period may be, um, the, the damage that's gonna, going to be done to the global population in terms of like um, the death count is going to be tremendously high. But eventually, hopefully, we'll get through this, and I believe we will. And... Um, my biggest fear is that people aren't, in the long term, in years to come, in decades to come, people aren't really going to be um, 
to learn and adapt based on this like as soon like obviously we're gonna make the appropriate changes as we need to to deal with this but as soon as it's over uh my biggest fear is that people are gonna go back to like doing the same stuff ever again um swine flu uh happened about 10 years ago or so 2009 2010 and um a lot more people that's my than that i believe it I believe it killed about two hundred and thirty thousand people worldwide. I'm not yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure if those numbers are correct, but it sounds about right. Hopefully, I'm not too far off. I apologize if I am. Um, that yeah, that's currently about a few times more than uh, I think. Currently, right now, as of the end of March, as of 29th of March, we have uh, thirty-two thousand deaths. So it's two hundred thousand more. So this is obviously. Um, a, tra- a tragedy in human history and it's not it, like it's, it's not a light matter and um, one would think that when something like that happens like people would make like adjustments and try to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again and obviously some things have been done but it doesn't feel like it's been that much and this is my biggest worry yeah personally yeah, I think it's as I said, it's going to be something that for a couple of years people are going to be afraid of. Then by that point, eventually we'll either have some form of treatment or some form of immunity, whether it's just immunity because a lot of people have had it. It's not quite herd immunity, but obviously if enough people have had it and it lasts long enough, then you are less likely to spread it. Um, or, you know, we might develop a vaccine. There's been several vaccines in development for COVID viruses since MERS and SARS, and that might now be sped up. Um, but once people start to forget about how serious it was, I mean, look at swine flu. After swine flu, for years, people were cautious about flu and people stopped taking their vaccines again. They are very, very short lived, short um, memory creatures, really, when kind of. Dis- um, Your microphone is cutting out a little bit. Sorry. It's okay. It is true. So, yeah. It is true. Um, hopefully, uh, hof- hopefully uh, we do make adjustments. Because one thing that was and still is very scary, like when, uh, when COVID first hit China, and China like, went on lockdown, they shut the borders out, they shut like, national exports out. They shut like, a, lo- a, lot of, uh, a lot of the medicines and a lot of the equipment that we get in the UK and a lot of other countries get worldwide does come from China. So a lot of that stopped. And yeah. we have we have a shortage in in basically everything. Basically in, in most things that we need in medicine and equipment and like a lot of the shortages that the NHS and basically every other country's um, medical system is experiencing right now comes from um, a lot of that um, due, due to the fact that um, a lot of the things are um, imported from elsewhere from other parts around the world because we live in a global society it's a global network and when the global network collapses, um, collapses um, and, and the borders are shut down due to this situation in this case um that creates problems and that creates yeah. short- shortages worldwide um one, one particular example that i was looking at when i was uh, looking at um about a month a month ago maybe 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 not that long ago, but I was looking at, for example, um, apparently, eighty-five percent of world's IV bags are made made in Puerto Rico. Yeah, which is uh, in the Mexican Gulf, uh, which is an area of the world that's 
uh, notoriously known for uh, having a uh, very bad weather. So, um, you know, when you look at something like that, and it's like, it's only a matter of time before like a hurricane hits them and causes a major problem. And in September 2017, I believe, in late summer 2017, Hurricane Mary, a Type 5 uh, hurricane, hit that area. And um, the world went to, into a massive shortage of IV bags. Yeah. Oh, but if you look at like the, the current COVID situation in the Netherlands, the equipment used to do the testing, so the PCR testing that's being done to determine whether someone's infected, uh, 80% of the materials is supplied by a, uh, a particular company um, that is now having massive shortages of these tests because there is a massive request for supplies everywhere. But they are the only ones who've got the recipe. They are the only ones who have the information. Um, so when it comes to testing, like the Netherlands would like to do more testing, but they're struggling not so much with the personnel to do it, but just the materials to be able to do these tests. And the fact that it all comes from a single factory or a single company based in like Switzerland, I think it is. Uh, and that company obviously can't keep up with the current requests, but at the same time, you can't at, a, at, a, at you know at this short term change everything over. Yeah, Switzerland is very uh very affected right now also. it shows how dependent people are really of like supplies that you never really thought that we would be that dependent on in your opinion should we put like in the long term when we start dealing better with this and when we start like uh, you know containing it a little bit more um and get a little bit more leeway um in the long term should we should we and by we, I mean like countries individually, everywhere across the world. Sh should we try to put like uh, a little bit more effort in producing at least a little bit of, of uh, those stuff uh, internally? Um, I mean, it's easier said than done. If yeah. you look at the UK industry, there is a, a massive shortage of manufacturing, not just in healthcare, but in everything. Yes, and it's not something that is easily resolved, and it is obviously also an, an economic question there that this goes well beyond my knowledge or understanding. Sure. Um, I think a big problem even now is that this whole disease, whole this situation, is still being used for economic and political gains. Yes. Um, if you're looking at, for example, the stance that Trump is taking on this disease and rather than actually mentioning it by SARS-CoV-2 or COVID or whatever, it's going to call it the Chinese virus to blame everything on China. Then it's like the real danger here is people not being willing to collaborate during crisis, even though the collaboration would help the most. In the end, with manufacturing, we could have a factory that makes a lot of stuff, but if then the raw materials are still not something you can get in the UK, then there's no point in having a factory that makes stuff. If that makes sense. Like if you want to make hand sanitizer, then need a certain ingredient onto your hand sanitizer that can't be farmed in the UK, then it doesn't matter how many factories you have over here. If that can't be supplied, it's still going to be a problem. That is true. Um, and, and that is, is such a big, big thing that I don't think it's something that very easily would be resolved. You know, but, but 
I think it's very, very important these kind of times that we look past borders, past nations. Um, I'm very surprised by the number of attacks that you saw on Asian people going up, as if someone who looks Asian is straight away a COVID. A large part of them have never even been in China. Yeah, that's people being um, stupid you know, again. People boycotting Asian restaurants, but still going to get to an Italian pizza, which makes sense, which shows that they don't care about the disease, but they care about like race behind it. If there we look at the UK, yeah, but if you look at it like Europe, a lot of countries in Europe closed their airspace to China altogether when this started going out of hand, which makes sense in a way. But at the same time, the infections in China and in uh, in the USA combined. But I've yet got to see news articles about us closing our airspace to the USA altogether. Do you think that we should have done more in that regard, particularly? Because, I think, example, I think in a global pandemic, we should hold leaders of different countries responsible for the actions they take. And if they are unwilling to take the actions required to keep the population of your country safe as well, then at that point, you should cut um, transmissions and diseases in, in, in areas like I don't want to be the guy who like points fingers and stuff like that and I'm not gonna like accuse anybody but for example um, certain countries like Russia like Hungary they they, sh they shut out the borders very 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 early on uh, Russia in particular they, uh, they closed the borders I believe and the, at the end of January like or, or definitely yeah. like the first week of uh, February uh, at the latest and they put like medical teams on every single airport that they have. Like Rush has like a few hundred of them, and they put like hundreds, hundreds of uh, medical professionals on every single airport. And everybody who was coming in from that country, uh, from 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 where, from wherever, into, wherever was being tested into their country, uh, no matter what age they were, no matter where they were looking well or not, every every single person got tested. Russia yeah. currently has six hundred reported cases and one single death. Whereas uh, we have video videos on the internet of people like landing at Heathrow from Italy. Yeah. In the beginning of March, where Italy was already facing dire circ circumstances, and they yeah. just went through the terminal without any checking. Though you like again, like I'm not gonna point fingers, I'm not gonna like blame people, but do you think that we could have done more to uh, to minimize? Um, and uh, the the situation that we've put ourselves into currently in the UK, for example. Yeah, most definitely. Like the UK was already having a a delayed response towards a lot of other compared to another other countries. Like the whole sort of we're not in a full lockdown, but the sort of semi lockdown situation that we have in the UK right now was implemented more than a week after the Netherlands implemented it, for example. Uh, and I was surprised that the UK was taking such a long time. I was, um, you know, but then I'm looking at what's happening in the USA at the moment, and I'm just <laughs> shocked in a way on how serious the situation is still being ignored, still being um, underestimated, or perhaps even not underestimated. Perhaps they just simply don't care. I've, and I think. Um... That's like the, the stance that Professor, uh, Professor uh, President Trump is taking on COVID doesn't just put the people of his own country in danger, but currently puts a lot of people elsewhere in the world in danger as well because of the large amount of travel between 
the USA and Europe. And I think if countries themselves are not willing to take the measures required to keep themselves, but also in this global population to keep the rest of the population safe, then we as a global population should say, well, in that case, we're closing our borders to you. And we shouldn't just do that for China because we did that for China, showing that it isn't necessarily impossible. We're just not doing it to the USA, which doesn't seem to make any sense to me based on the current situations and shows perhaps in an inherent racist bias in the way that people are responding to this disease. I think it's a lot to do with um, our, the, the way that our different societies operate around the world. For example, chi China, or like the, the Chinese society, they're used to like um, a strict communist system where uh, um, basically the country tells them what to do a lot more than they do like for example in, the yeah. in Western Europe. So when when the Chinese government put the country on lockdown, like people sort of just like automatically complied with it because they're a little bit more used to it. Whereas if this was like done like in the same manner in the UK, for example, um, there, there would be a lot more backlash that people were being repressed and stuff like no, that. I, I agree. But if we're looking at, for example, the Netherlands, who closed its airspace to China, to flights from China because of the number of infections, then if they're doing that to China, why are they not doing that to other countries where there's also a big problem? And yeah. right now, the problem is even bigger. And that's where the sort of disparity is there. It's like, oh, if it's from China, it's bad. But if it's coming, you know, the people were saying on how poorly China was handling the outbreak and putting a lockdown when, when, when this whole coronavirus started hitting. But when swine flu initially came over from, I think, the USA, you know, no one was criticizing the USA for not closing their airports, not closing their... And we weren't taking the same kind of measures. And I think this is a very big problem now where there is still a lot of countries who are not working together, who are not willing to all put everything in there to keep the world's population safe. And that is probably the biggest fear now and the biggest problem now where everyone is, again, to everyone else. If you look at, at China, they are now actually... Um, they've got the infection under control and they're now terrified of it coming back into China from yeah. outside China. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree with your, your previous points also. And I, um, I think that's what I mean to say. I understand that we can't have the same lockdown in the Netherlands or in in, in same time way that they do it in China. But it's the way that we are not being consistent in how we are treating <laughs> other countries that pose a risk to us. Okay, um, let's talk a little bit about like um, other infectious diseases and how um, the current one compares to them. So for example, like in the 21st century, obviously we, we constantly see like um, instances of like different strains of influenza. I think uh, one thing that you probably want to talk about is that it's not the same thing. It's like that also mutates. It's like it has like different strains, strains and, not, and whatnot. It's not the same thing each and every year that we face it, it's like slightly different. That's why we, we keep getting like different vaccines. And also stuff like MRSA and SARS, like we've seen like quite, quite a few of those um, infectious diseases, like over the last 20 years, let's say the 21st century. Let's look at the last 20 years. Um, how does this one compare to what we've seen in the last 20 years? I think if you're comparing the new coronavirus to old SARS and old MERS, the biggest problem with SARS and MERS is one that it only transferred, seemed to transfer via direct contact. So it was easier to um, 
you know, to keep it into small communities. It was mainly restricted to households and healthcare uh, and not spreading so much. Um, and I think it was a disease where you had, to the best of my knowledge, less asymptomatic carriers. A big danger with, as we said before, with Corona is that a large number of people show no symptoms or very mild symptoms and that the incubation period is a long period. So by the time that you finally realize that you got ill, if you ever do realize that you got ill, can you remember all of the people you met 10 days ago? Well, I, I definitely can't. And I was pretty much at home for most of the last 10 days. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that's going to make it a very difficult disease to control. Um, when it comes to flu, it's one of those things that flu changes all the time. You know, the difference between different flu strains is the same as the difference between like SARS and MERS and um, other COVID viruses that we don't really die of, so that perhaps don't have a name that is quite as well, as well known to the environment. Just because you, we know that, for example, influenza mutates very quickly. Um, How quickly? I do not know the exact numbers on that, and I wouldn't want to give you sure. an estimation. But the fact that there is new viruses or like new versions of the viruses around pretty much every year gives me an indication that it does, you know, change quite quickly. This is why we get or a different it. vaccine every year, right? Because they have to adapt to yeah. like the latest strain. Yeah. So basically in January, they make a, they make a, an, a, an educated guess as to what will be the most serious or most prevalent strain that year. But sometimes that could be a strain. The most prevalent strain could be a strain that hasn't even developed yet in January. But it takes a while to make these vaccines. You can't just create it and then have it on the market a couple of weeks later. How, how so they, they need to start. How do they pinpoint sorry? down? I'm sorry. Uh, how do they pinpoint down what they think would be the most infectious strain in the current? Um, in the, in the to be honest, I do not know. Okay. I do not know exactly what goes on in um, in the decision making on that. That's okay. I'm assuming it has to do with like the kind of infections that they start to see that time around but it might be completely wrong i do not know okay. um but they do create the vaccine they expect are the most prevalent strains that year and sometimes they are spot on and sometimes they're very far off which is why one year the protection rates can be really high and the next year it can be very poor and um, we do not know because they have to estimate it well in advance because you can't wait until you see what the season is because by that point you're already too late if you still have to develop and then produce the vaccine in the first place I see. Um, I see. I, you know, I think at the moment one of the things that is causing the biggest threat to the 21st century is more diseases that were eradicated or nearly eradicated and that are now coming back because people are no longer willing to take vaccines. So if we're looking, for example, at um, Samoa, end of last year, there was a big measles outbreak on Samoa, on the island. Um, over the course of four months, 83 children died. Um, 83 may not seem a very big number, but that is 83 kids on a population of 200,000 in total. So if you were to convert those numbers to similar infection rates in, say, the UK, that would mean that the UK would have seen um, over 27,500 children die over the course of four months. And in the US, you would see 135, well, nearly 136,000 children die over the course of four months. Which puts it into a lot more of a perspective of the actual tragedy on this island. 
And a big problem in Samoa was that a few years ago, um, there were two nurses who accidentally made, prepared a vaccination wrong. They basically didn't com combine the right ingredients, and as a result, several died. That was then being used as a big movement, the big push for anti-vaccination movement. Therefore, the children weren't vaccinated. So once this started going rampant, the vaccination rate in Samoa had dropped to, I think, 64%. Whereas for, herd, for effective herd immunity, you really need uh, a vaccination rate of 95%. And for people who don't know what that is, effect, uh, herd immunity is when 60% or more of the population has developed immunity. So 95% of the population 95? or more. Yeah. I thought it was 60. So. No, 60 is way too low. Most countries are currently looking at high 80, early 90. Okay, okay. So 95 is ideal. Okay. Um, that is really required to sort of wipe the disease out altogether like box. The fact that it's in certain countries dropping below 90% at the moment is what is causing so much worry worldwide. Okay. Um, so in Samoa, the, the, the vaccination rate dropped to 64%. And you can see the kind of devastation it caused on that island uh, when measles eventually did arrive. And the sad thing is that there is very likely going to be a serious number of kids that are still going to die in 10 years, 20 years' time. This measles is notorious for causing um, a particular form of swelling on the brain that can happen any time after an infection. Usually, well, I say usually, it is literally any time. But it can be five years, it can be 20 years after. Um, and it's untreatable. So it's a situation where these people are still going to die of their even though we now think that they are healthy. So it's it's an awful disease. If you uh, look at measles at the moment, we're starting to see outbreaks of measles again in Europe, especially in religious communities and in anti-vax. Uh, we're starting to see more outbreaks of mumps on universities of students who were never in were never vaccinated against that and sometimes didn't even know that they weren't vaccinated because the parents didn't tell them that they were anti-vax. And I think that's going to be the biggest risk to um, the 21st century. It's not even so much the emergence of new diseases because what happened now with COVID obviously can happen again, but it's a relatively small chance that something like that happens again so quickly. But it's the diseases that we are currently protected against, but are protecting against less and less and less because people are getting skeptical to the effect that vaccines have and the protection that vaccines have created over the last couple of decades. I see. I, I want to talk to you uh, about vaccines a little bit more, but before we jump into that, uh, I just want to ask like one last thing um, in comparison to the different uh, diseases. Um, I've heard... Uh, what. what do we know uh, about COVID, uh, the one that we currently have? Do we know what uh, the what the expected death uh, percentage is? Because uh, with, no. with with influenza, it's like zero point five percent, zero point one percent, from what I understand. And with um, something like the Spanish flu, which goes a hundred years back now, in eighteen, um, it was about three point two percent, I believe they estimate, or something like that. And, yeah. I, and I've heard um, experts say that it will 
it's expected to be like some uh, like higher than influenza but lower than the spanish flu spanish flu being uh, the reason why i'm using this example is because it's like the most dire one we've got in uh yeah quote unquote modern history so this, this is like the, the worst one we've seen in practice this- the simple answer to this is we do not know at the moment, because in the vast majority of cases, we are only testing people who are already showing severe symptoms. And if you're going to only test people who are showing severe symptoms, then you're automatically going to have a much higher death rate. Um, it is going to take a long time of research before we can actually give a very trustworthy estimate of this number. But it's very likely to be much lower than what is currently being reported. Because as we say, most countries are not testing appropriately. And if you're not testing appropriately, then you can't give a, a proper number. I see. So we just don't know yet. No, we don't know. And okay. it's probably going to take a couple of years before we will know. Okay, that's a, that, that, that's a good answer. Um, <clears throat> we can go back to the vaccines now. Um, and just like general vaccination, we don't specifically have to focus on uh, any single disease. Um, I, I have a suspicion of what you're going to tell me, but I'm, I'm going to ask anyway. Like, are, is general vaccination necessary or is it an overreaction? Because a lot of people, like, um, a lot of parents in particular, they refuse, from what I understand, um, they refuse to have, like, their um, their babies vaccinated and because, uh, because of fear that... Um, um, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard of a, a bunch of different things, and you can go into detail about how true or false that is, um, and if there is merit to this. But for example, um, they're, they're, they're afraid that um, the chemicals in the vaccination, for example, a lot of the vaccines that are given to like babies, to infants, uh, contain uh, glyphosate, uh, which can, which, which, which some parents believe that may give babies um, autism. Or make like predispose them to to developing autism at an early age. Um, I've heard I've heard uh, other people saying that um, you know when when a baby is born, um, its immune system is like very very weak and very very vulnerable, and like injecting it with chemicals within the first twenty four hours of it being of uh, the baby being born um, does more damage to the uh, like like it does like permanent damage to the immune system. Like for, like that person, but for the rest of their life have a weaker immune system because it was damaged when it was fragile when they were born and stuff like that um how much merit if any is there to those claims uh, pretty much no merit okay. when it comes to autism claims it is something that's been around for a long time it comes on a paper that has since been debunked it was a study by andrew wakefield who himself at the time was developing vaccines but he worked for a company that made individual vaccines rather than a triplicate vaccine so as the mmr is three infections in one vaccine and he made one that was for one for each and had a lot of stakes into that company when and he that? put out a paper I, I can't remember okay this came out a long time ago like 2008 okay. i think um and he tried to discredit the three, the, the combined vaccine to be able to push his own vaccine and get more sales of that. In addition, his research was funded by a group of lawyers who were specifically looking for a reason why these kids were having autoimmune disease, had, were having um, autism. Now, the kids that were selected all had, even, had already shown symptoms of autism before they even uh, started the tests and the vaccines. 
And the, the study has been shown flawed in many, many different ways. The big problem with autism is that it's just a development of the brain. Autism is often seen as like a disease. In a way, autism isn't a disease. It's just a, a different way of the brain developing. And it's a very broad spectrum. There's a lot of people who have autism. It's being diagnosed better now because we know what to look for. But it's the same way that people are better able to diagnose cancer that doesn't mean that cancer happens more now it just means that we can now spot it more easily uh, and it's the same with autism it is a, a way that the, the the way that the, the brain develops is different and that starts even before a child is born so the idea that vaccines cause autism is completely debunked there have been literally thousands of studies that have shown that there is no link and yet people will also always still cling on to this one study that has been shown to be debunked. Um, because it's easier to blame someone else for um, an abnormality in your child than to just accept that your child is different. Um, when it comes to chemicals, there is a lot of different chemicals, as they say, in uh, vaccines. Most of, these most of these chemicals are available in everyone, everything else that we eat and consume. Uh, they've been very, very extensively tested and shown to be safe. Certain chemicals that were sh safe have been removed just because people were worried about it. So thiamersal, for example, which is a mercury compound, is shown to be absolutely safe. It gets removed from the body. It's all fine. But because it had mercury in, people were, were scared of it. Now, yeah. keep in mind, it's a mercury compound. It's not elemental mercury. It's the same as like... Salt, table salt, contains uh, is, is made of sodium and chloride. Sodium is incredibly explosive in touch with water, and chloride is incredibly toxic. Yet the two of them together f form table salt, which to a certain extent is essential in our bodies. Yeah, you know, we they are it, right? exactly. And that was the big problem with mercury as well. And because of those concerns, it has been removed from all vaccinations, like nearly two decades ago, even though there was no danger with it. It's just because people were too worried about it that they've removed it. You know, people complain about aluminium in vaccinations. The whole point with aluminium is that it's important for the immune system to activate an immune system. Um, and the amount of aluminium that is available in um, vaccinations is tiny compared to the amount of aluminium you get exposed to every single day through food and even through breathing. Um, it is, you know, I can go through a whole list of chemicals and that by itself would create a whole new podcast. The <laughs> um, big problem here is that people see something or hear something and then they're worried about it and they, it sounds scary and therefore it is scary. But when you're really looking at dangers of these kind of chemicals, it has to do with the dosage and the version and the form in which that's meant that that particular element is being, um, you're being exposed to like formaldehyde there is literally 100 times more pair than there is in a vaccine yet you're perfectly happy to give your kids pairs it's not going to make them any you know it's not dangerous and vaccines are not sent straight into the bloodstream as often as being said as well it's being inserted into a muscle which means it actually takes longer to get into the bloodstream than if it were to enter via the gut so it shows a lot of misunderstanding that people have of vaccines and i think that is a really dangerous situation because people are making all kinds of claims online that are not true. And as a result, a lot of people are unwilling 
to take and give vaccinations to their kids. If you're looking at like the viral the first day, vaccinations take several months before you get the first. Uh, in fact, the injections that kids get on day one is a vitamin K injection, and that has been shown to massively improve survivability of newborn babies. Uh, don't ask me why. I have learned this back in the day, but it's not my field of expertise, so I'd have to look that up again. Don't worry about it. Um, you get exposed to pathogens every day. The amount of pathogens that the child is being exposed to whilst it's going through the birth canal is already far bigger than they're going to get in the first 10 years of exposure through a vaccine. You know, the whole point of the vaccination is that you give people exposure to a part of the immune, because they don't have an immune system, uh, at least they have an immune system, but not an adapted immune system that has um, that is able to specifically focus on one disease rather than just a general response that harms your body. Um, because they don't have that, it's very important that you start showing them little bits in a controlled manner rather than go like, okay, here is now a disease, fight it. Because that is the alternative. If you don't give people vaccines, then all of a sudden their bodies are expected to fight a disease without any knowledge of it altogether. Um, most vaccines don't even contain the pathogen. They'll just contain a part of a protein that your body will respond to. So the whole vaccine cannot even make you ill. It just starts to create a system. But it's, I'm just trying to think what the best way of explaining it would be. It's like... They're doing pretty well. Um, It's, it's like if you're going to go into a situation where the difference is between you know what you're fighting or you don't know. And if you know what you're fighting, you know what kind of weapons to bring. You'll be better what off, you do yes. What you do with a vaccine is you're telling your body this is what to expect from this fight so that your body can use the right tools to fight it. If you don't get vaccinations, then your body just goes like, here is a war, go fight it, without any information whatsoever. And then it needs to try and find out on a very short term um, what the best way to fight it is. Now, it is a, it's a very big misconception. For example, people say that if you get measles and you fight it the natural way, your immune system is stronger. The true fact is that measles wipes out your immune memory. So all of the knowledge that your body had fought for that they knew about other diseases is wiped out. So instead of actually making you stronger, measles make you more susceptible for other diseases for another seven years of infection. It doesn't make you stronger. If anything, it makes you much weaker to fight anything else. So there's an awful lot of misconception. There's an awful lot of really information out there, and especially with the rise of social media, that has become stronger and stronger and stronger. And people keep listening to gurus and um, you know all kinds of, of of people who do not have the right background, who do not have the knowledge. Um, of these particular, you know, the science behind it, the knowledge behind it, they're going to tell you vaccines are really bad and then at the same time try and sell you in a deal costs a fortune because they can make a lot of money out of making people distrust vaccines. And it's really sad because it is, in my opinion, the single most, um, uh, well, the, the best development of, med of medicine can in the past... Um, in the past hundred years, really, if not longer. I see. It's yeah. Can adults out there who haven't been vaccinated when they were younger go out and get vaccines? 
now that they're adults if they want to, or is it, or, or is it something that yeah. has to be done at a particular age? Because for example, I can use myself. I've not had all of mine done. Uh, when I was born, I had you know the initial ones done. Then I had one done, which everybody gets when I was seven years old. I don't know where it's for, but I got it. Maybe you know. And then uh, probably uh, MMR, actually. Probably yeah. It's it's done like in the arm, like in the upper arm. I think. Oh, it, in the, it's in the upper arm. That's yeah. most likely. To- I don't know, but it's not everybody gets it. Every single person gets it. Um, but, um, but, um, although, to be honest, most vaccinations are given in the upper arms. Yeah, and uh, but then there is another one that everybody gets, and they get it when they're like 14, 15, maybe 16, somewhere around there. 14, 15 sounds about right. I didn't get that for some reason. Uh, when I was 14, I got my meningitis one. That, that might be the one, yeah. Usually, like most people, like, I know that people get one around that time that I didn't get because I, I went and they checked and they said like uh, they, they they looked at the one that they had done to me like when I was like seven or something because like it's like in my medical records and they said like you don't need that for another like year and a half um, oh, okay. so, so we're going to call you like for like in a year and a half and then never did <laughs> so I never got it yeah so the one in your arm was my that you probably MM mm, the DTP one so diphtheria tetanus and no, it um, really matter. Polio, and that one tends to have a 10-year... But anyhow, it doesn't matter. If you haven't had your vaccinations or you're not certain when you're up to date, then just go and chat to your GP. There are certain vaccinations that are perhaps no longer effective at a, longer, at a later age. For example, the TB vaccination is often no longer given to adults because it just does show, it doesn't show... Uh, adults don't tend to provide um, much immune response to it, so there's no point in giving it if you're not really going to create an immune immunity to it unless you are very likely to get exposed to TB. Um, but yeah, if you're not certain whether you're up to date or if you're not certain whether you've had everything, go and talk to your GP. Uh, for young kids, for kids, it is also that they can go and talk to their doctor. It's I don't know the exact regulations. I do know that there are certain countries where doctors will let younger kids go without their parents' approval. But even there, there is like a minimum un- lower age associated with that. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and again, that's going to be different per country, what is and isn't allowed. Okay. So, yeah, the best thing I can say there is if you're not quite certain, go and have a chat with your healthcare professional. Thank you. Um... One last thing that you might that we might want to talk about. Um, you said you wanted to talk about um, antibiotics and why they don't necessarily work in some situations. Because right, I mean, this is something that we probably might want to address right now quickly because a lot of people like might think about treating um, COVID the same way they treat the flu and stuff like that. As in, and, and a lot of people like take like antibiotics like when they don't necessarily need to per se. Do you want to talk about that quickly or? Yeah, I don't want to go too deep into it because, again, it will take everything away from COVID. I think the main thing that I want to say is that antibiotics do not work against COVID itself because antibiotics work against bacteria, not against viruses. Uh, They target specific parts of a bacterium. Um, It can be a particular protein or a part of their membrane or whatever. It is very very, very specific to the bacteria. Um, they specifically design them in such a way that the antibiotics will only talk back to, uh, target bacteria and not your own bodies. So as a result, they will not work against viruses. 
It is, however, possible when you have got COVID that you might get antibiotics at the same time, because as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, people with coronavirus can often get a co-infection. So the, because of the infection in their lungs, their lungs go um, are weaker, their immune system is weaker, and so they might get a bacterial infection on top of it. So when people are getting antibiotics to fight the infection, it's not to fight COVID. It is to fight the additional infections on top of the COVID, but not specifically COVID itself. And I think a big problem here is when people try to self-medicate with antibiotics, you're then creating a bigger chance that bacteria start to create um, resistance against these uh, medications, against these antibiotics. And then if you do need it, especially with COVID, if you then need the antibiotics on top of it, it's an infection, it's no longer going to help. Um, obviously, there's a lot of countries where it's very difficult to self-medicate onto antibiotics because you can only get them uh, on prescription. But at the moment, if your doctor says that you do not need antibiotics to fight what you think may be COVID, then there's a good reason for that because really the antibiotics will not do anything in the first place. If I'm anything, they're just going to make you feel more ill. I'm going to say is, uh, Eastern Europe is a lot more wild in that regard. I, could, I have walked into a pharmacy and I've gotten like antibiotics multiple ones just like yeah. that, no, no prescription or anything. yeah in so, asia for example so, certain places it's easier as well <clears throat> so maria um, that um concludes all my questions that i have um is there anything that you want to say or address or quickly talk about that i, I haven't asked uh, asked you because you've been uh, you've been such a great guest you've answered all my questions you've been wonderful to have i want to give you this platform to I've, talk I about think anything pretty that you much want to. I think we pr pretty much covered everything that I thought that we might want to talk about. Okay. You know, all, all I can do right now is really urge people to just stay home, whether or not you are at risk, because if nothing else, just protect healthcare services and make sure that you don't become yet another person on top of the list, because they really don't have the resources to handle it. And if you don't need to go outside, why would you risk it? Why would you risk their lives as well? You know, stay home, enjoy it whilst you can. <laughs> You know how, there's a lot of people out there who cannot yeah. enjoy it right now. You know how like um, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom like um, has, has or had until recently at least like a message like uh, he, he would broadcast like a message for a couple of minutes to like the general public and many other leaders of uh, their respective countries are doing that right now as it is. If you had like half a minute or like one minute to just like send a message to like the general person in the United Kingdom or like Netherlands or anywhere in Europe what would you like to tell them? Uh, I would say if, uh, you know, in the current situation, don't um, go and behave as if you don't, if you're afraid to catch coronavirus, just behave as if you already have it and stop other people from getting it. Okay. That's a reasonable thing to say. Um, how can... Um... Where can people uh, look up your stuff if people want to re read uh, your publications or like um, uh, look up your work online? Uh, do you have like social media? Do you have like websites where your uh, your work is available? Where can people find your stuff if they want to? Uh, I mean, I am on Twitter uh, under Dr. Maria Zalm, but to be very honest, I don't have an awful lot published on Twitter because obviously most of my stuff is confidential work within a publisher, so my my work can't really be. Uh, widely discussed online. Okay. But if people have questions or whatever, then I'm always happy 
to talk about them or discuss it or when you know when i've said things that you don't agree on or if you're an expert in virology and i was very wrong point you know please let me know okay that's your twitter handle any shout outs that you want to give mm, not really <laughs> i haven't really okay don't worry about it well uh, thank you very much for being on uh, maria it's been a pleasure to have you it's been a wonderful podcast and thank you for the opportunity oh my pleasure i like uh discussing interesting things with interesting people and knowledgeable people too and you are both so thank you thank you for listening everybody bye 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 bye